All right, welcome friends. Uh, most of you were with us yesterday and thank you for returning. I uh, see a couple of new names and thank you for being part of this. My name is Seth, I use he, him pronouns and I'm part of the Community Engagement Institute staff at Wichita State. And we have the opportunity to help you have a great meeting today. Um, we are not here as your content experts. We're here to help you do more productive and more efficient work uh, because uh, you don't have to then think about how the meeting is operating. Uh, I won't spend time on introductions of everyone today uh, because we're going to be very conversational. So please, when you do speak, and I hope you do speak today, remind us who you are and where you are. And in the meantime, would you, if you have access to the chat, say hello there and uh, remind us where you're joining from and what organization you're primarily representing today if you're part of an organization. Uh, when Andy first to say, hey, we're having this really exciting conversation and we've got Justice Matters and Burt Nash and City of Lawrence and Douglas County and, uh, uh, and KDADS and all these folks coming together and there's a lot of momentum and we wanna talk in a month. Uh, one of the things we said was, uh, so who's going to help people have some content to hold on to? And Andy said, no worried, we've, worried. we've got it covered. Uh, we have Sam here. So Sam, Kalimara to you. And uh, I don't think that we need to spend any more preamble. Uh, Sam has let us know today that while he has lots to say to you, he also wants this to be a conversation when it's useful, uh, I will step in and provide some moderation. And you always have the raise hand function available to you and the chat available to you. Let's have a great conversation as we begin day two of this important work. Okay. Is that turning it over to me, Seth? That is turning it over to you, Seth. <laughs> Thank you. And Kalimera, back to you. <laughs> Uh, good morning, everyone. A pleasure to be with you. I'm uh, honored to be invited to participate in this conversation. Um, in talking to uh, Andy and uh, Melissa uh, about how to prepare, uh, I thought that I would uh, maybe outline, because most of you are familiar with Housing First and you're sort of thinking about uh, this, at least the way I understand the context, you're thinking about launching something uh, of scale, you know, uh, perhaps beginning in Lawrence, uh, but, um, and so I was going to talk a little bit about the components uh, needed to set up an effective, not only a housing first program, but a, uh, a to organize the system of services for people with homeless, uh, people who are homeless, particularly those with mental health problems as a, as a systems approach. So housing first as a program and as a systems approach. So I'm gonna sort of, I uh, have a, you know, a couple of dozen slides to walk through that with, which you know will take me maybe 20 or 30 minutes, which will give us a, a lot of time then to have a dialogue about uh, what that implementation or the questions about implementation 
might turn to when you're thinking about it from the context of your own agency or your community. Does that make sense as an agenda for the time for this meeting? Yep, I think that's right. Where um, we want also, okay, thanks, Andy. Um, also, uh, you know, I'm not attached <laughs> to anything, uh, you know, in terms of, so if there's other ideas or questions, you know, totally open, uh, I sort of see us uh, sitting around a Greek, uh, you know, uh, temple in a circle and we're sort of philosophizing and uh, discussing how to change the world in Kansas first and then the rest of the world in a moment. Okay, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with the slides uh, and um, just so we're all on the same page and we're all using the same language about what uh, housing first is. Because one of the things that has happened in this uh, dissemination, uh, um, I'm trying to get into slot. Okay, is that good? Can you see that? Can you is that the way, is that the right way to have the slide or view? Would, yes. So we we no? can see it, but you're not in the uh, presentation picture. Right? Okay, hold on. Let me see if I can figure this out. Okay. Sorry about that. All right, well, we'll cope with, with this. Um, okay, I guess just in terms of background, I, I wanna say uh, that, uh, you know, it's been an interesting year for uh, understanding uh, some of what is getting in our way um, nationally. And uh, the, the, what we've learned in the way that we've managed uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has been uh, kind of uh, a huge, you know, for all of us, like an incredible sea change of uh, lifestyle and uh, so much information and new ways of working. I mean, and look at us today. But I, I wanna point out uh, two things about what we learned from that e experience and how it's informed, um, how it informs in some way our practice around homeless services. So, there was a review, uh, an interview with about 100 epidemiologists around the world. This is going back now a few months. This is like maybe October. You know, the election was still very much uh, undecided. Uh, COVID, we were leading the world in deaths. Uh, the thing was completely out of control. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of head scratching about how a country as resource rich as the United States could be in this mess. And they interviewed epidemiologists from around the world, asking them like how they saw the problems in the states. And this article in, in, in the New York Times uh, really broke down these answers into two major reasons that the epidemiologists thought were contributing. One was a fierce uh, individualism in the uh, baked into the kind of uh, culture of the United States, that it's not a collectivist culture. So this idea that I wear my mask to protect you uh, is not, you know, was not something that was widely uh, or uniformly held. There was a lot of, you know, right down the middle, like the country is split in half about, you know, my freedoms or business versus public health. 
and we were you know all over the map with the masks and so we had no consensus no leadership and our core values were not as one place one community and the second reason they gave was that the information about transmission about the usefulness of social distancing about when to open up was also inconsistent so we have a core value system that doesn't is not inclusive or community based which is what the countries that were doing better i mean most notably let's take an extreme example of new zealand where they you know really didn't go through it they sort of they, and you know let's just like let go the, restra- the the huge differences between new zealand and that but just focusing on leadership consensus having one point of view and uh, other countries that were more consistent had lower rates of both trans- transmission and death and what was amazing in that summary for me in reading it was that if you took the word COVID-19 or the pandemic out of those sentences about what it was that was keeping us not doing well with the pandemic and inserted the word, how are we dealing with homelessness? Uh, it, the paragraphs read perfectly the same way. You know, we have contradictions in value systems and multiple ways that we address homelessness, you know, from compassionate to make them earn it, to clean and sober first, treatment first, housing first. There isn't one, you know, and we have a, a, a mix of um, uh, philosophies and approaches. We have no uh, real safety net, you know, compared to, let's say, other countries uh, in terms of housing as a basic right or healthcare universal, you know, so we have still that very individualistic approach. So we are, you know, leading the world in homelessness per capita, by the way, you know, the Western world. And uh, it, it seems that when it comes to, you know, public policy and how we do, we don't, we don't do well if we just let things as they are. Why I, uh, you know, think that, that we can do much better is that you have the conditions now today you know you're having the summit you have uh, leadership uh, resources are coming uh, I think that so you know step one if you're going to think about doing something different is to have a consensus and a community-wide or statewide shared vision you don't have to change the whole country you don't have to you know, the world, but in, in this particular area, given the leadership now and the uh, magnitude of the problem, which, you know, certainly in Lawrence, uh, very manageable, uh, 280 people on the last count living outside, 120 of them chronic, it's a, this is a very manageable problem in Lawrence. And if you translate it statewide, also manageable. But before we get to anything, we have to get to a, a shared idea of what we're gonna do and then how we're gonna do it. So that's, uh, I think that's, you know, why uh, I've had better days on the technology, I'll tell you that. I can't even find now the mouse to toggle the next slide down. Uh, um, 
I don't know if I can help you find the mouse. No, I mean it's in my hand, but it won't. Uh, it, it will. It, it, it might. It might be able to use your down arrow and see if. You yeah. Okay. It. Okay. There we go. That is so weird. Uh, Sam, do you want to just do you want to email your slides to me real quick, and I'll see if I can get them to run on mine. Yeah, I could do that if I could find my mouse. <laughs> so I can get off the screen. Let me try escape. I'm really sorry. I'm not sure exactly what uh, is happening here, but okay. Oh, here we go. The slides are moving, right? Well, your, your main slide. Oh, there. Now we got some movement. Okay. Okay. It went down to. Uh, went, I don't know. Okay. 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 Ten, okay. Good. Okay. I'm, these these arrows will work. Okay. Um. Okay. Coordinated entry. Uh, this is something, you know, like who are we going to serve and how are we going to do it? Oh, we have to fix coordinated entry and prioritization. Let's start with that. Uh, coordinated entry is um, developed by HUD. You know, they uh, decide HUD wanted to make sure that providers were not creaming uh, and taking the easiest to serve people. So they put in place a mandate which uh, emphasizes chronic homelessness, okay, which, which is important to HUD for many different reasons. They also happen to be frequent users of systems. Other, other systems use a different criteria for prioritization, like healthcare systems here in Los Angeles, where I've been working, have something called um, housing for health. And they take everyone who's been in a medical or psychiatric emergency room three or four times over the last two years, and that's who they house, you know, regardless of chronicity of homelessness, it's the frequent user group. As in the mental health world, uh, they don't, there's not a lot of clout here at DMH. And so they refer people who are uh, homeless and have mental illness to the coordinated entry system which uses a different prioritization, chronicity. So you might have someone who just left the hospital or lost their home because they had a psychotic episode, they had no one taking care of them and they're on the street wandering around ranting, but they've only been homeless for like, you know, two weeks or three weeks. That's not enough to meet the threshold for chronic. And yet that person, I would argue, absolutely needs to be brought in right away. We don't have to wait for them to be chronic so that the coordinated entry uh, criteria as it's being used often driven by, you know, now we know instruments like the VI that are not only unreliable or have no validity, they're also racially and gender bias and, you know, like exclude uh, African-American women at much higher percentages. So I know it has a veneer of kind of objectivity and people have used it like, you know, a 16 is more meaningful than a 10, but it's not. And, and I think that, you know, if you're going to introduce a prioritization system and if you're going to drive it by vulnerability, you need some way, and uh, you'll have to do it because HUD requires a mandate, but there is a way to fix coordinated entry so the prioritization is actually getting to the people who we know are most vulnerable from more of a clinical or administrative data or actual data rather than a quick checklist. There isn't a quick checklist that tells you this thing. You can get multiple 
better instruments that can give you a pool of people who are eligible. And I would argue maybe coordinated entry is better served if you think about creating a way to identify people who are eligible and then almost like a lot lottery, you know, they're eligible. So there's a place, move them in. You don't have to go exactly in sequence, but there are ways to fix that. I just highlighted not offering a specific uh, fix, but just saying that the way it's working may not get us to where we want to be in terms of who we want to house uh, immediately. And then, you know, the next layer. This is, uh, of course, the system that we have. And uh, what typically happens when there's new funding, as, as is happening uh, right now, is that the, the systems are, um, there's a lot of um, stakeholder investment in having the government distribute money uh, sort of equally to everybody who's in business now. That's not gonna change anything. That's gonna grow everything that's there in place but not really create a new uh, way of working. You know, if we can't get shelters to be low barrier and uh, open at night and, uh, you know, look to move people who are in the shelter for more than three months and, and immediately into permanent housing, you know, we're gonna have the same um, situation, just bigger shelters. So that we have to change the fundamental uh, assumptions and requirements that we currently have in place for people who are homeless. I mean, I'm talking about changing the treatment first step-by-step -step model, which we know from the studies of housing first is effective about 30 or 40% of the time. And then people, uh, you know, fall through. The current systems we have, I think to say it simply is this it's it, it's a linear it's a linear model assuming people will go up a set of stairs but you're it, it's a linear model that's in place for non-linear conditions like addiction and mental illness and even some health problems so as people relapse in that linear model they're excluded or evicted or otherwise discharged and they're back out on the street so it's it, it's the wrong fit it's a, a linear model for relapsing or recurring position uh, conditions is, is not a good thing. So here's a, that's by way of background and to say by uh, introducing housing first is that the first misunderstanding I think about housing first is that, that it's about housing. <laughs> it, it's, it's not about housing. It's actually about person-centered care based on a psych rehab philosophy of, uh, I don't know if those of you may be familiar with Bill Anthony, who is uh, kind of a, you know, a leader in that field, but it's, um, you know, uh, and, and I say it with sadness because Bill passed away last uh, July, but, uh, but Bill and I worked together to, in the, before the housing first, was really to shift uh, our approach to uh, street outreach for people who are homeless and mentally ill from a, an approach that took them to shelter and uh, emergency rooms to an approach that invited them to the table to say, how can we help you? Because taking you to the hospital for the 12th time, is it going to do anything different? It's really fundamentally an approach that is a commitment to people who are homeless and have these other conditions 
that includes housing as an option. But the commitment is not to an apartment, is not to a particular housing place. It's a commitment to that person. You know, and, and, um, and that was learned, frankly, quite accidentally, because when we were doing that psych rehab on the streets program, uh, Bill Anthony and uh, Dave Shern and I, it was a randomized control trial. And, you know, if you're familiar with randomized controls trials, once the person has been assigned to either control or experimental, you really need to follow them for the duration of the study because you know that's your that, that's your data and if you don't have data you can't draw conclusions so you would go to a meeting at the drop in center for people who are homeless and it's like they had some appointments set up other times people would just drop in but if someone wouldn't show up it's like well it's all right they'll be back eventually you know there was no anxiety about kind of like making sure we can account for everybody and then you go later in the day to the research meeting and they're going through the roster of the 125 people that were in the study. And if someone couldn't be found, there was a level of anxiety on the part of the researchers. It's like, oh my God, where are they? Who saw them last? We got to find this person because we needed to find them. And I thought, you know, what's wrong with this picture? It's like, why aren't the clinicians as anxious about finding people as the researchers? And I think that's really a, a shift in thinking where the responsibility for engagement, uh, follow through to uh, getting benefits, getting housing, all, all of that, staying housed, if you get evicted, going to the hospital and back, the responsibility for engagement and care is with the provider, not with the client. So uh, that's, you know, uh, that's something systemically that I think is, uh, would change things uh, immediately, you know, and also the importance of having the client in a very co-participatory way uh, participate in the, in the, in the design of the, of the plan. You know, it requires that we would have to change our providers' attitudes, uh, you know, it, 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 some more than others. You know, I don't think that, you know, I know that Lawrence is, 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 is uh, home to a great university and, and the founding place of strengths-based case management. So it's not like, uh, you know, we have, uh, we're, we're in the uh, unknown world of what is this. I mean, I'm just saying that if we're going to, if we're going to move in the direction uh, of a housing first, we have to go further in that, in that direction and emphasize what's already there in place, build on that as the foundation and add housing and other components to that way of working in case management, certainly strengths-based, certainly honoring uh, consumer input and choice, having people make decisions, allowing them to fail so that they learn from their mistakes and not discharging people because of their mistakes. So responsibility for continuity is the provider. Absolutely. No discharge policy. No discharge policy in Housing First programs. Very hard to lose uh, people because people will give you many excuses to discharge them, but the commitment is no. You know, it's not a discharge. Let's figure out how to do it better the next time. I mean, some cases, of course, in extreme cases, you know, people die, people move away, people get arrested. You don't see them for a 
two, three years. But even with that, you should be waiting at the release date of their jail terms so that you continue following them uh, once they're out. It's, 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 it's a real commitment to uh, not, not lose people and have people make the decisions for themselves. And so what do we need to get this uh, going? So I've already said probably the most difficult and challenging thing, which is all of this kind of uh, mindset and philosophy and practice. That's, that works best, you know, if people are on board uh, with it. But even if they're not, that's what we have to, those are the skills we have to teach first. The values piece is going to make all of the work easier. The rest of what I'm going to say is not so much about values. It's really more about the resources, you know, and and making the case. Uh, what do we need to make this thing work? Uh, I don't know. Anticipating uh, pushback, like how can you put people who are homeless and mentally ill in apartments of their own? I think one of the best things that I've read about this recently is that, you know, there are many, many more people in the state of Kansas with mental illness and addiction who are living in apartments right now than the uh, 280 we're talking about putting into it. It's already happening, except that, you know, we don't know about them. They're not in the public health system. You know, it's just, and also people who are going to be uh, uh, offered an apartment if, if they want it, and most people will want an apartment of their own because you're gonna drive this not by placements, but by consumer choice, because there'll be much more of a buy-in and people will be happier to be uh, part of that program. The, um, most people will choose a, a place of, the, of their own to live. The, the essential ingredients or components uh, that you need uh, is a rent subsidy, you know, and, uh, it, 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 you know, it could be a shelter plus care or any of the, any of the rent subsidies that we know. Of course, the voucher, I think, is, is ideal. It's, it's such a well-designed um, rental assistance product that it doesn't actually lock people into endless care because if they do uh, get a job and make money, they pay more. So the, the whole thing is, is, is just a brilliantly designed, but you need, you can't really say you're a housing first program and operate a shelter. You can, in a shelter, you could say, you know, I'm tr trying to do a housing first approach so people don't stay a long time, but to really have some, uh, at least consistent definition of program fidelity. So we're, we're saying this is housing first, this is what it means. It means you're in the business of serving people who are homeless and have mental health and addiction problems. You have in hand the resources or the housing to put someone in housing right away. You can actually deliver on your word. And you have also community-based support teams. I know you have uh, case management. Uh, ideally, you'd wanna increase that to something that's more act-like. And there are different options for that. You don't have to go all the way to ACT. You can use uh, modifications uh, of ACT, uh, and certainly in, in, in the more uh, rural areas. And you can also use something that they're using more in the Netherlands and a little bit in Canada called FACT, the Flexible ACT Team, because one of the, one of the things that does happen with people uh, in, in, in this work is that they get housed and, the, and you support them and they get better. People get better. They recover quickly, uh, more quickly from addiction and mental health.
than they do from poverty. <laughs> so they'll need the voucher for a longer time than, than they need the services. That's one thing. The other thing is that they, because they do better, they don't need the intensity of ACT, but there's no drop down. The idea sometimes from ACT is that, oh, they will just immediately go and work with the local CMHC. But that doesn't actually happen. It's very hard uh, the, to make a new relationship and people, there needs to be a more gradual uh, graduation away from intensity of services from something like intensive uh, sort of community treatment like to case management to case management light, and then maybe community resources uh, down the road. And FACT has that kind of a gradient where you can um, slow down the services, but still have the continuity of care. You could still be, uh, for example, seeing the same prescriber or nurse or a peer specialist, but the frequency all changes, but you have that continuity and flexibility. It's a, it's a, it's a great model. Um, and then the other, the other uh, piece is, um, you know, the, the, the standard program requirements. You know, uh, people sometimes get confused because uh, there's such an emphasis on client choice. But the, but the choice is not to give people uh, more choice than the rest of us. This, the choice really is intended to even the playing field so the people we're serving have the, has, have the same choices as the rest of us, you know. So, uh, so it's not a choice uh, to move in and not sign a standard lease and be responsible for all of the terms and conditions of a standard lease. People have to live up to the community standard, you know, uh, in terms of uh, hours and uh, loudness of music and guests and no illegal activity. Uh, they have to pay 30% of their income, whatever their income is. Typically, it'll be SSI, could be some other uh, benefit uh, towards the rent. And they must agree to a home visit. Uh, that's not a choice. Uh, we're not putting people who have, you know, it's a harm reduction model. We're putting people who are actively sometimes symptomatic or some, using in an apartment. They say they can do it. We're willing to give them that chance, but we must visit them. It's not a choice not to have a visit. Uh, and if it's not a good day, you know, today's Thursday, uh, I'm not doing well, that's all right. You know, we'll be back tomorrow or this afternoon, but we'll be back. <laughs> so it, it, that's not an option, you know, and, and it's one of the, I think, uh, uh, one of the things that's most challenging in operating high fidelity housing first programs is actually matching the level of support to the client need you know, while balancing that choice element, you know, you, you, you need, you need to be there a lot and, you know, motivational interviewing, uh, persuasion, whatever it takes, you need, you need that relationship to be strong. You want people to be happy to see you, but even if they're having a bad time and not happy to see you, you still need to be there. So it's, uh, it's really, you know, let's think of it like this. Let's think of it not as a housing program, but a program that is all about recovery and recovery is more, is better facilitated by having someone go into housing right away. And then we work on their recovery. The program principles are uh, these, uh, I'll just go over very quickly. Uh, some of them, uh, you know, the choice is not an absolute choice. Uh, I couldn't find a real estate map that shows the rent values uh, around the Lawrence area, but, you know, like everyone else who is poor, and this is all about 
poverty, you know, managing poverty with additional conditions. Uh, you know, poor people are only going to live in certain areas where the affordable housing is. So you say, oh, yeah, of course, you have a choice in housing, but it's not like an absolute choice. It's a practical choice based on where Section 8 uh, apartments uh, could can be found, you know. Um, so it's um, the, the thing the thing about the, the, the thing about this that um, also is very important, uh, you know, is, is this thing about recovery. Anthony talks a lot about uh, psychiatric, uh, you know, recovery from symptoms or not living, living your best life with symptoms, I would say, is, is Bill's idea of recovery, living your best life so that you have a life that's not about you just being a client or a patient. It's like you have more of a life than that, however you manage it. But there's also this economic uh, recovery. Empowerment is not just decision making. There's economic empowerment, and that's why uh, I. It, it, it's definitely the preference of people who are homeless. If you ask them, they want to live in their own place, uh, and the voucher, tenant-based voucher, is the ideal for, format for that, because in the project-based housing where you have a building and everyone, you know, the landlord or the developer owns the, the vouchers and people just go in. There is no way out for those people, you know, and we do have this now already, the move on problem. We have a few hundred units of permanent supportive housing, people living in a service rich building and no longer need the services, you know, but they can't afford to move out. So you're kind of like taking up space there that uh, could be better used by someone who can't do it in independent living. The tenant-based voucher gives the person the uh, autonomy and self-determination to also make moves or change life, have a relationship, their kids come back. It, it, it empowers them economically as well as the support services empowering them psychologically. It's, it's not a small thing. But when you're thinking system-wide and want to create capacity, I think that this is the bottom line for me. It's like you want to create as much rental housing as normal as possible, you know, and not invest more in project-based or permanent supportive housing or shelter. Because if you move people who are in those places for a long time into apartments, it'll create more of a flow in the system. But you have to sort of overload in one direction to make the system move in that direction. I don't know if that's clear, but we could talk about it more. Of course, you've got to have providers that are bought into uh, stages of change and harm reduction. That's the way you're going to have to work if you're going to let people move in right away. And and I, and I don't mean just in terms of addiction. I mean, you know, people have a lot of health problems, hypertension, diabetes, relationship issues, uh, budgeting money. It's all, it's all harm reduction in the sense of uh, skill teaching and reducing the risks uh, that make people vulnerable until they uh, can do it. People will need more services than we can offer either with ACT or FACT or case management. So there's a tremendous brokerage that happens also in the community. And frankly, most of the services that, uh, most of the things that people actually want, uh, you know, we can't provide. You know, people want a, a relationship. Uh, they they want to have, uh, you know, uh, 
a life in the community that is, uh, you know, that, that they're, they enjoy going to things together, um, having friends, uh, those things uh, are not part of the service, formal service system, but those are the things that actually drives a lot of people's passions and we're not well equipped. So the idea of, uh, of service should be broader than what, you know, Medicaid will reimburse. It, it's really about uh, the idea of helping people realize the thing that is most important to them. And often that will take you into conversations and areas that uh, are not the traditional service piece. The separation of housing and services means, uh, and I'll tell you that people do get evicted from their first apartments, you know, sometimes 30%, 35% of the time they'll lose it and they need a second chance or sometimes a third chance. But like I said, there's no discharge. We try again the next time. The thing about having uh, the scattered site with the offsite teams is that when people don't do well the first time, they still have the team uh, helping them understand what happened in that eviction and then also helping them get to the next place uh, so that there's no break in continuity of service support, even through residential crises like eviction or relocation. You can often broker a relocation before you have to go all the way to eviction or if people get arrested or people get hospitalized, but the continuation is there. The matching the services to consumers and needs, I think I've already talked about in terms of the different kinds of models. You don't have to be wed to a particular model. You wanna make a model that is, uh, you already know who you're gonna house so you can be prepared to provide that service of support. One of the things that's always missing in these mental health models is the primary care piece. So, you know. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm never sure because I live out in the country and things are a little spotty here, but it looks as though we may have lost Sam for a moment. Uh, and until we have Sam back, what are some uh, initial responses to what you're hearing? I just wanted to um, mention that what Sam was just talking about when we just went off is really important because a lot of our conversation yesterday was about constructing units, constructing projects. People's focus was a little bit on, you know, knocking out 40 or 50 units at once. And Sam is talking about the real limitations of that approach. Um, and what he's referring to is scattered site supportive housing where folks live integrated in neighborhoods and communities and the support that they need follows them there rather than placing everyone who needs support in the same complex and then the support is tied to your ability to remain in that segregated type of housing. Um, we have Shannon's on the call. We have a really successful Section 8 voucher program locally that is primarily scattered site where clients can take them vou their vouchers with them to a suitable, appropriate housing um, throughout the community. And so I think um, I, I, I think we should continue to ask some questions from Sam about um, models 
that are like that. And, and also we, we fixate a lot here on the limitations of our um, rental housing because we're typically occupied at 97 or 98% of our units. But again, like Sam said, we're talking about 280 people um, and we have a population of, of you know, 15,000 renters in this community. So it is possible to do scattered site at scale. Um, I, I so think Sam is exactly right. I would also say though that a, a, a truly diverse portfolio of housing would include, you know, something like in a, a bar, apartment complexes that are used more traditionally where people then transition into scattered sites and their services follow them as they go. And they're not locked in like he was talking about being locked into a site and that we, we look at a, a truly diverse, you know, portfolio of housing that we're creating locally because, for example, in this situation that we're in today, if we want to have expedited access, we either are going to master lease units and then building for the future to be able to have that capacity to plug and play in the future. We will, if we don't, if we don't just have master leases that the city or somebody else holds, then we would have to have the actual housing stock to plug and play and then to transition people into more permanent scattered site locations. So I, th I think there's a lot of room to talk about what diversity means and to, to think about what it means over the long haul for both today's immediate needs and long-term, you know, 20, 30, 40 year needs. Renee and Matthew, thanks for getting us going. Jill, you have a hand up. I just wanted to um, say that um, the last slide that Sam ended on about um, ICM teams and ACT FACT-like teams, my friend and partner um, at Douglas County has been talking, Bob Trajanski has been talking about this same model and we've implemented ICM with Heartland REAC. And I know a lot of you know that, but I want, I, some of you may not know that. We have ICM, the county pays for it. It's integrated with a lot of the partners already. So I want to say that's already something we got going for us. The ACT Fact Like team, Bob's been talking about it for like three years. So I had to send him a screenshot, heart explosion, but it's really, it, it, for starters, you know, it's different than what we've historically done. And we got a little bit of sticker shock at the beginning. We've evolved since then, and we're progressing down a path that I think is better informed how to go about what we're doing. And I'd encourage folks to go back and watch the um, County Commission study session yesterday on the intensive care team update. Um, I see Andy shaking his head, nodding, and I know folks like Charlie know this as well, but we've been evolving down this path. And I last thing I'll say is that I want to make sure that the county's investment in behavioral health and the taxpayers' investment in behavioral health in Douglas County um, is substantial in meeting the needs of people experiencing homelessness in the community and preventing folks from experiencing homelessness in the community. So it may what I just want to make sure when we're thinking about what the county's doing in this space, it's substantial. Um, we're ready to do more. We want to make sure that we're doing more, but we also, I just want to make sure that I'm elevating that for this group. I think I can also speak on that, Jill, is that I'm part of the mobile response team um, that CJCC has been working and planning on. And um, with 
having that kind of three-tier crisis response um, and intervention groups, I think it's really important that folks experiencing homelessness are also a centerpiece in that conversation. And I don't know if that's happening right now. Um, and so that's something that thank you for bringing up and that I would very much like to at our at our next small set, uh, study session that we have, we'll bring up and, and address because I, it is essential for going to have crisis response um, as kind of a partnering to uh, what we're talking about today that we are centering folks who are consistently living in crisis and that is the homeless population. So thank you for that. And I'm taking note. Absolutely. Yeah, and Marielle, I think that's why we have waited so long to do mobile response because we knew we weren't ready as a community. We knew the stakeholders weren't ready. Um, so folks that have been on, you know, and now that we have folks like you engaged, making sure that we're doing it the right way and we're centering those voices, that really tells us the time is right to keep moving forward. Absolutely. And thank you for that. I, I think also to kind of add to this conversation, what I kept kind of hearing is the what I see housing versus and in my experience and training and looking at other communities, especially Canada, where the origins of, of this philosophy and, and practice are happening is, is really we're changing the culture of how we provide social services. And I know all, for pretty much all of you know that, but it's a big shift, not only for service providers, but for community members to understand. We have to orient them and educate our community members on the fact that housing should be a human right just as much as food and other services we provide. So I think the big takeaway from this is being stakeholders and having that community um, summit yesterday was really, really taking this information and what we plan and talk about today and deeply sharing that, communicating that to the community and making sure that it's centered in this ideology that we need to shift away from, not completely away, but shift away from how we approach folks in crisis now, especially those experiencing homelessness and how something like Housing First can be the, one of the tools in, in our tool belt and a, an investment that the community needs um, to really learn about and feel like they can take a part of. Thank you for uh, a high energy start to the discussion. Sam, it looks as though we have you back. Yeah, I, I'm using my phone. Uh, somehow the uh, internet service um, went out. So, um, so I'm really sorry about that. Uh, it's, it's not back, but I can participate on the phone. Uh, I mean, I, I was pretty much at the end of my uh, presentation anyway. The only two other, I guess, points I, I was going to make was about uh, we've talked a lot about services and social services. But if you go in the direction of this using community uh, landlords and rental housing, there is a um, property management component, you know, learning to work with landlords, having you're asking what we're doing is we're going from PSH, which is a, you know, a standalone building with services on site to an apartment in the community that's owned by a landlord. You know, just like it's 
difficult to go from ACT to using a community clinic, you need to support that landlord much more so than uh, any regular rental because you're asking them to uh, take a chance, you know, in terms of taking a tenant that doesn't have any uh, credit worthiness or other history, that there's going to be someone there they can call and, uh, you know, a support for that landlord. And there's just on the budget side, you know, you have to furnish these places, uh, relocation costs, and the staff that does the landlord relationships should be, um, could serve, you know, they should be somewhat separated from the clinical staff. You know, they, they, they're not the same as case managers. Ideally, uh, it would be uh, good to have, you know, someone who's like a housing specialist managing all the property management issues so that they don't have to wear two hats and have to be kind of a mini landlord to the person they're trying to have a relationship with. You know, they can separate that function. So that, that was one thing about the property management thing is not uh, inconsequential. Um, that's it. And, and, and I think, you know, however you set it up, the implementation and training piece is one thing, but there needs to be an ongoing fidelity check, like, you know, because uh, things drift. And so I think you want to build in a quality assurance component so that uh, everyone's doing the housing first programs in the same way, because if you do it that way, then you know you're going to get 80 or 85% or even better housing retention rates over time. And that, that's, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you, Sam. Uh, I know that this group overall is pretty sophisticated in this area, and I know there's a range of knowledge. Uh, so let's start with some questions for Sam to help you understand what he has shared. What questions do you have about the content? Um, Sam, would you mind going over just a little bit about the, um, the, the members of an ACT team or a FACT team? Yeah, uh, they very much uh, interdisciplinary team. So you have um, social work represented, uh, somebody who could be a social worker, but also an addiction specialist, peer specialist is part of the team. Uh, you need a prescriber. Uh, I don't know if you can have a nurse practitioner or a psychiatrist be a prescriber. Um, you need people uh, that, you know, uh, a psychiatric nurse. Um, um, so probably two or, you know, if the, the team is typically a one to 10 caseload ratio. So you can have from there, uh, if you're serving a hundred people, you might have two peer specialists, two social workers, one nurse, psychiatrist, you know, and a team leader. But that's, that's pretty much the pattern. And I, I would suggest, if possible, to have a primary care person, either part-time or full-time, depending on the size of the team. Now, if you're going to go FACT, then you can also have, uh, it'll be a bigger team because you're serving more people over time, but with um, higher caseload ratios as people get better. Mm -hmm. but th those, are, those are the essential. Occupational therapists are also excellent to have on a team in terms of the practical navigating the day-to-day -day life of uh, managing life in the community, you know, is, is helpful. So that's for the very high end group that we're talking about chronic people with multiple conditions. As you 
uh, are serving people with less severe needs, uh, then their, their, the caseload ratios are, are, high, are higher. And also you don't need all of the complexity of services because some of them can be um, obtained at the local uh, community clinic or uh, you know, uh, not directly provided by the team. Sam, could you talk about strategies um, regarding um, typ typically that 20% of folks who are not successful in housing first, right? The folks that you may have housed multiple times, you've wrapped around services throughout that period. Yes. And they may, have, they may have lost a voucher. And so they've gone even through multiple vouchers in their lifetime. Can you talk about strategies for that population? Yeah, I, I think that... Um... It's hard to know when someone actually fails. You know, I mean, that you want to negotiate as much as possible and you know prevent eviction, relocation. But there is a group that this just uh, you know doesn't work for. The, uh, and, and and it's usually because the tenant can't manage their front door. You know, they they are vulnerable, and people end up coming to their apartment, and that creates the, they can't be alone, or they're using and and people come in and they're letting people come in because uh, one way that they support their addiction is uh, using the place. For, for that group of people, I think that if the team can manage to sustain the relationship with them, they would do better in a single site type of building where there's someone controlling the front door. That's really the key, you know, that it's really their inability to say no to others. And so you would need, you know, if they were wealthy, really wealthy, I would put them in a building that has a, like a door, uh, a doorman service, you know, like someone, you need someone at the front door who can check in that this guest has come in and they're also leaving more structure. So the, the people that don't do well in independent, this, this 20%, uh, will will need a different type of housing, which will be typically defined by more structure, especially in controlling the comings and goings of their unit. We're going to 10.30 in this section. So any of you who need a moment to stretch at any point, please take that. Jill, I see you have a hand out. Sam, I wanted to ask a question about um, any advice that you can offer in terms of um, for our community and for the, um, the stakeholders, the funding partners in the community. Do you have any advice in terms of what should be the, the mixture of, of investments in terms of community supports? Um, that could that support a housing first. Um, I, I wrote down housing for health model. Um, you know, we historically, the county and the city have made have been longstanding partners in funding um, our emergency shelter. Um, we're we're integrating more of our support, um, at least at a county level, into. Um, additional um, supports for the community mental health center and behavioral health supports. But what's the right, but what else is needed in terms of a community that's our size? What else, what's the balance of what other needs do we need to make sure that we're investing in um, 
and I don't really want to get bogged down in you know what should the state not be doing or not be doing because I think I think with folks like Andy and Charlie and Aaron on the call I I think they they they're thinking about those things but as a community city county uh, private businesses state private citizens what should we be investing in to support a housing for health model well you need to figure out who's paying for what right so you need who's going to pay the rent so if your housing authority has an excess of housing vouchers then 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 you're fine but if you don't have enough housing vouchers to meet the population then you can create local housing vouchers. Lots of communities have created a, a stream of funding that works exactly like the Section 8 voucher. You know, the eligibility is the same, the 30% uh, of the rent and so on. Fair market value, so it gives you actually a little bit more flexibility uh, about uh, where you want to set that fair market value number so it's realistic to your community. You can do away with some of the HUD restrictions around uh, people with criminal justice histories. So you want to create a product uh, that is a rent subsidy locally. That'll give you a lot of control and adds a lot more resources to your ability to rent units. That's key, you know. The other piece, you know, uh, there's a small piece that's property management. You know, like who's going to be looking for the apartments? You know, that's like a, a, a practically like a, a real estate broker function, working with landlords, uh, making identifying the units, having cash on hand to put down the first month's security deposit. Some communities pay a bonus to landlords for working with the program, a two month security deposit. Uh, but but that's that it, it's not an expensive piece, but it's vital to the efficiency and effectiveness of operating that program. The property management piece also includes, you know, like $1,500 uh, per apartment to furnish things. Uh, otherwise you're gonna have people, you know, uh, without, so there, there's that part, very practical, not complicated, but very important to add. The, the support service team um, has to be mobile, has to be dedicated to this group and, I think that you can either, you'll have to kickstart it somehow because you can't have enough of a caseload to build Medicaid. But if you can build Medicaid for case management, that's going to be your long-term stream funding. But you might need a year of startup funding to get the team going until they have enrolled enough clients so that they're generating enough Medicaid revenue to be able to be self-sustaining that way. So uh, that might be a year, it might be two years, frankly, depending on how quickly the enrollment goes and how much people are participating in services. But those are really, you know, and, and who pays for that, you know, is, is going to be, um, you know, who, who, how you can put those, but those are the components. That's what you'd have to put together. Does that make sense? Okay. Thank you. You know, I just, just, I'm sorry, just one other thing about the service piece, because I, I, I sort of missed the beginning when I got dropped off. You know, in, in an ideal uh, format, the, uh, the team that does the support services after people are housed should also be involved in the outreach. You know, the handoff 
there should be much more continuity. You want the team that is going to be looking after people once they're in an apartment to be the ones handing that person the keys to that apartment. You know, not like, oh, we're the housing first team and outreach will refer to us, you know, or we'll be called in after the person is housed. You want some continuity there. So you want to have their reach as they're enrolling people, outreach into housing and then follow up. I just wanted to add that as an operational piece. I'm sorry, go, go ahead. Thank you, Sam. Um, question I had is what kind of stigma reduction campaign should the community be doing as they're initiating these processes? You know, uh, I think that there's probably no better uh, way that I know of to uh, reduce stigma than uh, to have people who are who have gone from being homeless to being in the program come and talk to communities about what that uh, transition has been like for them and uh, how it's changed their lives. So I, I think probably people with that lived experience are, are, are the best representatives. One of the ways I think that there's an advantage to the uh, program, if you do it in a scattered site model, is you, you don't have any of the kind of NIMBY or other issues because all you're doing is renting an apartment you know, in, in a building, in a regular building. You don't need permission to do that. You just rent apartment 4B, it's next to 4C, you know, that kind of thing. It's sort of an invisible program that way. And people have reported that, uh, you know, for the most part, once somebody is housed uh, and, you know, they've had a, a night's rest, they're not very different from the other people in the building. Some people have symptoms that are more visible and depending on who your neighbor is, there's either a sort of a compassionate uh, approach or some people get a little bit, um, you know, they get uh, upset by that and, and, and kind of, you know, you might have to negotiate something with the neighbors. Uh, they see a case manager is visiting, but th that, uh, did you have in mind a stigma in terms of the neighbors or uh, selling the program to the community in general? What were you thinking about when you referenced that question? Uh, I was thinking more on systems-wise of selling to the community in general. Well, there, there, there's two, the two big selling points on this is effectiveness. I mean, uh, you know, the program is 80% or better effective. I mean, we don't have anything like that in the uh, homeless services portfolio that can talk about accountability and uh, evidence-based outcomes that, that uh, are as good as that. It's also a, a cost offset. You know, it's a cost saver in terms of the reduction of acute care services, number of arrests, emergency room visits. I mean, all of that is pretty well documented. So there is that. The idea of, um, the idea of giving apartments away doesn't, uh, you know, and a harm reduction model is sometimes uh, challenging for, for people, but it, you know, I, I guess, I, I mean, it, it, who's the community? I mean, you're you're the community. There's no issue there. Are you thinking that uh, who would you be presenting it to that would raise objections? 
because I think you'd have to tailor your explanation of what it is you're doing, depending on what the concerns are of, of the people you're talking to. You know, it's not an issue of safety. There's no data that says, you know, people who are housed are typically, you know, less involved in crime than people who are not housed, you know, arrests or victims of crime. Uh, I mean, it kind of, um, maybe I'm a little bit too, you know, uh, biased in this. I'm trying to anticipate what you, what you would think of as uh, someone raising objections. Like, what would their objections be? Well, I can just speak to, you know, having sat through a couple of the um, neighborhood meetings um, yeah. of part of, um, so we had a, Sam, we did a, um, a sanctioned campsite um, this past six months um, and using some COVID response dollars. And um, we worked really closely with the neighborhood association um, and the neighborhood leadership for the most part were very supportive. Um, we did it in tandem with them. Um, we didn't even pursue the idea until they had we had buy-in from them. But we did um, attend this folks in this uh, on our team, including Matthew and um, David, and attended a series of the neighborhood meetings with on Saturday mornings. And there were questions about. Um, you know, drug use, um, property crimes, things like that. Um, yeah. Which it, it's hard because they're um, it's real versus perceived. So there's that part. But um, I think that there's, in terms of you know, even if you go with a scattered site model, um, one experience that I've had with a local program, artists helping the homeless that purchased a home in a. Um, a nicer neighborhood. Um, there was opposition from area property owners that knew what was happening there um, because there was a perceived devaluation of their property. Um, right. Yeah. right. No, I think I understand the NIMBY kinds of issues when you are even purchasing a home for four unrelated adults in a residential area that's all families is going to be very controversial. We're not buying anything here. You know, we're renting from community landlords. You could buy, you could buy individual units. I mean, if you had a different kind of investment and you had a nonprofit that was willing to take on a huge real estate portfolio, you could actually buy uh, apartments, condos, you know, uh, even houses. But because for the most part, these housing first programs are rental and they're like one apartment at the time. There's no clustering, there's no campsite, there's no single site, there's no one home. So uh, it, it really comes down to almost who your neighbors are if there's gonna be an issue like that. But it's for the most part, I would describe it as fundamentally um, an invisible program. You know, it's not, it's, it's, it's the no program program. People just move into an apartment and, you know, they look like everybody else. So I think I, the, oh, this is ahead. Shannon Nowry. I'm, I'm with the housing authority and we yes. have had a similar model. We have a transitional housing model. Um, but, and so we have vouchers. We've used home funds and the city and the county have given us uh, funds for families at the shelter. But the problem that we have is, is we have some really good partners who bring the 
services, the wraparound services in the case management. So Burt Nash and Family Promise, they're really good partners. We've also had some partners who they agree to do that piece of it. And the next thing we find out, they've dropped off. Oh. Um, and so we have that people without the service. What sort of model have you seen so that um, one, I mean, we don't fund the case management, we fund the right. voucher. And right. How right. have other communities addressed that issue? Well, that, that's a huge issue uh, from, uh, and I understand your perspective about it. And I would say this, the program model I'm describing, the entry point of the program, the point of admission to the program is not the housing. The entry point of admission to the program is the case management program, the ACT team or the case management team. So when that person is coming to you for a voucher, they're coming to you with the assistance of their case manager. Their, their case manager is committed to helping them get housing and stay housed. So you have that commitment. That's what I was saying before, like visits are mandatory, home visits are mandatory. There's a no discharge policy. All of that is the case management team doing that. All you are expected uh, uh, is expected of you as the housing authority person is to manage the voucher part, you see, which is the way it should be in terms of support services. It shouldn't come back to you. So that's, that's how this uh, approach takes care of making sure that nobody's left in a, in a voucher uh, paid for program without support. It's, it, it starts with support. You can't even get to the voucher unless you have the support in place. Can you talk, can you talk a little bit more, Sam, about the continuity between outreach to um, looking for housing to being in housing and how the continuity of that relationship with the case manager throughout is really crucial because we have a fractured system right now where people are going through a lot of series of handoffs to different know. providers. I know. And, and it's a mess because- It is. Yeah. That's no, I mean, all that coordinated entry and this one and referral and that, it it's, it's really has really uh, challenged the model. And I would encourage you to undo as much of it as possible and to introduce continuity. For example, if you are, where the, where the sources of referral are probably outreach and shelter, and I don't know who else refers, you know, but whoever the source of referral is, if, if the criteria for the program admission are understood, I would recommend a, uh, a warm handoff and personal introduction to the housing first person long before we're talking about housing or anything else. This is at the engagement phase. And you might have to even retrofit through coordinated entry. This person is going to that program. But you know, you, you, you want that um, engagement of the housing first program as early as possible uh, after the person is identified as eligible. It, it, you know, it require a redesign on what's going on now. The, the, too many handoffs. You know, we're not we're not FedEx. You know, we're not like passing people along an assembly line as if relationships don't matter. This thing is all about you know relationship and trust building and continuity. So you want the person that's going to be there at the permanent housing side engaged as early as possible. 
And also it reinforces the fact that their connection to the housing first case manager is what got them the apartment. And this is their go-to person for all of these other things. There's a kind of a, a clarity of focus and, and investment in the relationship that's different than someone who's doing the paperwork and just passing you on. Brandon, I see you have a hand up. Hey, thank you. And I appreciate this isn't really the hand raising sort of crowd. Um, but uh, uh, Sam, just uh, kind of a question and I'm, I'm following the chat. Um, there's some really good comments and uh, back and forth there. Um, and so maybe my question uh, might might be on topic with um, some of that, but can you talk a little bit about the, the peer specialist uh, component of the program? or the, of the model and yeah. really, you know, how, 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 where is that working? Well, how have you seen that really work? Well, um, I think that may be something that, that, uh, we could improve in here in our system. Is there, um, is there a certified peer specialist program? Yes, uh, there is. So, so th that's a group that's already trained to be a peer specialist. I think that, uh, what, what I could tell you what to, the peer specialist is someone who comes in, I sort of see them as another specialist on the team, you know, like a nurse or a psychiatrist or a social worker, what they bring, this is sort of a, uh, maybe a little, uh, I'm not sure if this is the best way to say this, but there's like the lived experience of homelessness uh, and uh, being a recipient of mental health services or addiction treatment is, um, is not something that most providers have actually experienced, okay? And there's also uh, a sense of, um, you know, also there's the, uh, there's, a, there's a, often a class difference in terms of poverty and uh, background, not always, but there's, a, there's that. And there's also the definition of crisis itself and what people are capable of, you know, and, Someone who has lived through, uh, let's say, the homeless experience and what they've put up with and what they know is real danger from, you know, risk and uh, safety. And there's a kind of uh, the, the contribution that that person makes is unique, not only uh, in terms of their ability to empathize with the clients that they're serving, but I think it also helps to ground the team in uh, the reality of what clients are going through. We, the, the, a, a lot of the challenge in, in housing first programs is a shift in power differential, decision-making authority power, so that you're really trying to have the client be the decision-making, the decision-maker and the leader of their own treatment plan, which requires uh, uh, a kind of a humility and uh, and a kind of a facilitation role for very well-trained people who are the providers, right? And I think the peer also plays into that dynamic where you want to even the playing field so that uh, there's more of a blurring between provider and client, the peer specialist, almost a bridge in that system, uh, you know, so... That's, I think, the ideal, that the peer is incorporated into the team fully as a staff member. The expectations and responsibilities are the same as everyone else. One of the things you want to avoid, which happens 
more frequently than we care to see is that people who are the peer specialist on the team become like or or are, uh, have a role of like an assistant case manager. You know, they kind of do the chores. They'll drive the person to see the apartment or if someone's gone missing, they'll go look for them. You know, like um, that's not that's not the model you want. You want the model where the person is uh, fully at the table and uh, respected for and uh, responsibilities expected to be the same as, as, as everyone else with accommodations. I mean, sometimes people need a different schedule or, you know, there are sometimes you accommodate, but not in terms of the, um, not in terms of the uh, authority or value piece or equal voice on the team. We're uh, at a little less than 10 minutes, Mariel. Yeah, um, thank you. I just wanted to to just tag on to that that importance of what of what you just said and go back to to what Renee was saying because I think in the chat it was I think we were all talking about different things and and that just kind of brought it together. Of I believe there should be some some absolutely the continuity of somebody that starts that journey with you and is a continuation and that there is not a drop-off or a series of exchange of services because speaking as a community member and somebody who has experienced marginalization that similarly intersects this is that if you have a case worker, that person should be your number one, but there should also be a team of support. And I think that, that you are familiar with and that, um, you can also feel that they are a resource because I'm thinking from a, a transformative justice model that one person should not hold the keys to somebody's advocacy. It should be a, a community or, or a group effort. And so I think that ideology of having that peer or advocate who can level the playing field or at least have that intersectionality without having that counter-transference because I think it's very um, often that we, we do see that relationship boundary not established well, and they either be used as somebody as maybe breaking boundaries of professionalism or not being treated as a part of the team because they are not the case manager. And so I think it, it's really important that that is voiced again, that it, it's going to take more than just one person assigned to one case, uh, yeah. one individual, and that there are support individuals in within that process that are in contact with the community that do understand and have shared experience. Because I will say, being around some case managers and even experiencing my own, there is a power play there that is right. not what I believe is at the root of what housing first should be. There should not be a hierarchy of power if we're truly going to give the client the choice. And so I think that needs to be very, very, very uh, taken in and sat with a little bit because that is a different and a cultural shift. That yes. you're not handling a person, you are working with and allowing that person the autonomy to 
work within their own crises to the capacity that they have and be that supportive structure, but not be the sole structure. And so I, I just really think that that was important. So thank you for voicing that. Well, thank you. That was, that was very well said. You know, there are some teams that um, I've seen this particularly for youth, LGBTQ, trans communities, also in some of the cultures like in Canada, the Métis, Maori, uh, the Métis and Cree tribe nations, and in New Zealand, the Maori, where the entire team is uh, consists of peers, you know, people with lived experience serving that population. So this is a huge issue in terms of uh, representativeness and, and power and all of the issues that you raised. Absolutely. You know, and it, it, in terms of our own discussion, we talk about a peer specialist. I think, I think you want to, at a minimum, have two peer specialists on the team, because otherwise, you know, that, that uh, also garners a certain amount of support rather than just having uh, w w the one person a little more difficult to challenge a system. And, and uh, having two actually brings uh, mutual support in there and gives it a stronger voice and presence. Yeah, and uh, um, one thing I'd add, Sam, to that too is, is the idea that it, it can be important to have multiple peers just so that the, there's, a, um, there's, a, there's opportunity for people to look at gender options and, um, you know, or, or other factors that may make those individuals more comfortable working with that peer specialist. I have, I have one more question. Um, Sam, do you have any examples of where um, folks land in through a, through an ACT team or a FAC team or through a housing first process are landing in housing that's not necessarily like our typical landlord tenant model? Because um, that is just an inherently exploitative relationship that we are all man that I'm managing. So, you know, in Lawrence, we have a really great network of cooperative housing. And um, sometimes that's a really a, a great option for folks um, that actually can help them avoid the yeah. uh, avoid the maze of, of housing instability altogether. And so I'm just wondering if you have any examples of like where cooperative housing or other alternative housing models can weave in. Um. Well, a couple of things come to mind uh, in terms of that economic empowerment. And I, I would defer to the person if she's still on from the housing authority. In some states, and I know this is true federally at HUD, you can actually use your HUD voucher to pay a mortgage. So that uh, if a community, you know, when we were talking about what kind of resources do we have, you wanna talk about economic empowerment. If you have a foundation, say, that's willing to do the acquisition and closing costs on an apartment that would uh, ultimately have a mortgage that's low enough that could be covered by the voucher, you can actually use your voucher to, into home ownership, you know, and buy, and buy that unit is, is one example, uh, I thought. But I, I wonder, too, if, uh, you know, this idea of, you know, the house that was being described, if it's for people with vouchers and you could have the voucher pay for something like a home for three or four people that choose to share it, you know, uh, I mean, you have to, you don't want to have people assigned, 
but that might give you, it doesn't take you all the way to economic uh, autonomy, but it gives you a lot more uh, say so in how you're living and managing your house situation. Thank yeah. you, Sam. Can I speak to the cooperative thing just a little bit as one of the managers of um, one of the co-ops here in town? Uh, yeah, so I manage the people's owned and operated collective housing, and oftentimes we are a good space for people, um, but we're also not supportive housing at the same time. Like even right now, we're going through a crisis where this individual very obviously needs some supportive housing that we are unable to provide. And we're just like regular people trying to live cooperatively together and can't provide some of those same supports. I would also say that like, I don't, it's been very difficult for, um, the acronym is pooch for our co-ops. Um, it's been very difficult for pooch to get into the sphere of sort of nonprofit and, and public housing, like we can't accept vouchers. We don't have the capability to make the homes that we live in um, up to standard for to receive those sorts of things. Um, so yeah, any, any communal support that could make the co-ops even more empowered to be able to support individuals like this. I think that the co-ops are a good space for um, people to be in and not have those landlord tenant sort of power dynamics that Renee was talking about. However, we need a, a little bit additional support from our community in order to be able to, to do those sorts of things. And I would tack on to that. Thank you, Gabby, because I put that in the chat. Like, let's pump the brakes on that because with, and I'm also on, on the pooch board. And so we were just talking about this the other night that if we truly want to see a cooperative model be supporting, there needs to be investment. Right now, um, our housing co-ops are actually owned by a um, organization that functions very much like a landlord and puts a lot of pressure on the um, staff and those on the board to continue the culture that is so toxic to tenants. Um, and I, I will say that that those that are, are employed um, for Pooch specifically and not NASCO properties um, are doing what they can, but there needs to be an investment in those properties from the community um, to remove that uh, still ever existing presence of a landlord over cooperative properties. So I think it's a, a brilliant idea um, to have cooperative housing be one of the strategies, but not if we're going to just put it on the co-ops to figure that out and not invest and also not create a model of supportive housing because that transition is incredibly dangerous to just put somebody in communal housing that do not have intersecting um, identities or even crises that they're going through because you're mm -hmm. exposing that community to that without having the support. And so it, it yeah. I just, I hesitate big when I hear, when I hear that. Well, you know, I'll tell you, you are right now uh, exactly where, um, where, you're at the cusp of ending homelessness because it all started with the loss of public housing and other affordable housing options. And so now you're talking about ownership. And I think, you know, co-op models, the, you know, the country that's ended homelessness is Finland. 
And you know how they did it? They have a huge nonprofit called the Y Foundation. And the, the nonprofit owns, has become a, like a mega real estate holder, the Y Foundation. They only had 2,000 people who were homeless in Finland. And they purchased over the course of eight or 10 years, something like 12,000 units of housing. And why did they do that? Well, because lots of the units are for rent at, at market value. And for people who are homeless and need a subsidy, the market value can more than uh, sustain the difference in rent when someone who doesn't have money is, is rented. They pay like a third of their benefits. But the whole real estate portfolio is financially sustainable because of that mixed income model. So, you know, we're not going to get the federal government to build public housing anytime soon, but the extent to which as a community you can create ownership opportunities operated by nonprofits, so it's not a for-profit uh, relationship, and so money coming into the property is reinvested in the property, that's, that's ideal. And I want to speak very highly of Delaware Street Commons in this moment. I think that Delaware Street Commons um, is a certain population of people that get uh, upheld there. But I think it's a really cool model to look at how we can um, reimagine the sort of rental property landlord tenant relationship too. Well, and Gabby, just to follow up on that, we've had Section 8 vouchers in the Delaware Commons property. Um, so that is a, another option. It, you know, it does have to pass HQS for us to be able to do that. Um, but that is definitely an option. I'm struggling a little bit with my role here as on the one hand, this is really an important conversation. And on the other hand, people were promised a break and Sam was promised that he would be free. So I'm going to look to the group. All right, please join me in sending a big high five to Sam for kicking us off this morning and providing so much uh, that will be useful for the rest of our day. Uh, let's enjoy a 15 minute break. Please come back at 10.50, focused and ready to work. Thanks very much, Seth. Good being with you all. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sam. If you're back, would you give us some indication? Say hi in the chat or turn on a video. Thank you, David. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Send us a reaction using your reactions button. All right, looks like we got most folks. Our purpose for this time that you all are investing is to establish a framework to connect all of the efforts to address housing and homelessness in Lawrence and Douglas County, to identify areas where more investment or support may be needed, and to provide information on funding that may be available and think about how to braid it together. 
we believe that you're, the steps that you're taking today are moving you significantly toward establishing that framework. And that framework will put you in a stronger position to access this once in a generation funding opportunity that is on the very near horizon. Where we spent this morning was some information on uh, from a content expert and your first chances to start processing that. Some cool, even fairly specific ideas started emerging. Do want to take a moment, but I want to make sure that we have Matthew or Andy back. Yeah, I'm, I'm back. I don't know if Matthew's on. Matthew, you're on? It looks like he's on. He's turned his camera on. He just may be talking to someone in his office or something. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, we, we were going to just do a little bit of a, um, just kind of a, a, a point that when we, when we had our little listening session last night and kind of continued some of the conversation um, that we were having is that there were a, a number of things that came up um, and some of those I think were kind of brought up in the discussion this morning too, but just that there are, uh, you know, there are some very kind of specific needs around um, uh, peer support and consumer run organizations um, and um, how they might be able to assist in supporting individuals um, and, and how, how the, the challenges of um, dealing with that 20% that Matthew mentioned that Housing First really doesn't work for. And um, part of what we were hoping to do with this next segment um, is really kind of look at the, the programmatic areas or topics that maybe aren't addressed by Housing First. Um, I, I think we, you know, I'll speak for Kate ads and say that like housing first is something that we are invested in and want to fund. Um, and if we, if we take that as a granted that that's going to be part of our plan, then this next segment for today is talking about what other components or pieces of the community plan do we want to try to address? And if we can form those topic areas around those sorts of ideas um, and then break off into groups based on those topics, I think that would be um, very beneficial to the overall plan that we want to put together. Matthew, what would you add about the conversation last night or others who might have been around for that? Um, what I would say is that there's, uh, the, the conversation last night did start to revolve around this, as Sam said, the 20% who don't necessarily fit into the, the scattered site voucher-based housing model. And I think it's when we talk about housing in a diverse housing portfolio, we really, and when we're talking about housing first, and, and what Sam is talking about, we have to keep in mind that he's talking about that 80% that can be successful. And, and that it's, it's extremely important that we remember that you know, housing first in scattered site voucher-based um, systems is that 80%. Um, so last night we, we talked about this in several ways and it, you know, it, 
it uh, spanned several different topics. One thing that came up was a need for a type of group home type of, of solution, um, more like an Oxford house, but that is a mental health based and could possibly even be peer run, which would, um, if that was connected to DECA or a, an SUD provider or a Medicaid mental health, any kind of Medicaid provider that could provide some revenue in addition to rent to support the, that kind of uh, model. Um, we talked about the need for really robust kind of damage proof housing. Um, as Sam talked about, that doesn't share walls. It's, so it's not an apartment complex, it's a standalone single occupancy house um, for folks that may not do well when they're sharing walls with other people. For example, like to play music very loudly um, and have some, some trauma, for example, that, you know, they might talk loudly or yell loudly. We've, I've had many clients over the years that kind of fit in this category. You know, they need that little house on their own um, to be successful. And it needs to be somewhat resilient in its physical design. Um, and we also talked about the need for a community kind of drop-in space that is open for anyone to be there, even if they're under the influence of substances right? They're not going to get kicked out as long as they're not doing something that would warrant calling the police, like hurting somebody or themselves. Um, you know, they're, as long as they're not doing some, you know, something like that, that it's a welcoming safe space for people to be, it would be understood that they can't use, for example, um, on the premises, but, um, and this revolved around peer run, um, organizations like rain, um, or project acceptance when it was here in the in in the day, um, that there's a, a need for that that uh, and but really also the the space right the it was really just about an accepting space, um, so that's if I'm recalling correctly those are the kind of the three main areas or subjects that we talked about the robust housing for individuals the need for a group home type of service that applies to folks with severe mental illness and the need for a space for people to be that's safe, um, that won't kick them out, um, even if they're under the influence of substances. Very good, thanks for bringing that into the room. Yeah, and the other, the other thing I would say too is that, um, you know, yesterday when we did the, the sort analysis um, and we, we looked at, at areas that maybe needed additional investment, um, those topics might be also be good topics for um, our breakouts today. Yeah, so we're going to uh, experiment with a process here that in the in-person space we use a lot and in the virtual space we're still a little newer at and that's some open idea time. What we're trying to do is create some, uh, whoops, that was interesting. Are you seeing a slide? Yes. Okay. Uh, what we're trying to do is create some opportunity for you to bring forward the ideas that can be part of that framework that you want to talk about. And we think we've got the Zoom flexibility to do that and to allow you some choice about where you're going. The deliverable that we're hoping for from these conversation is um, a beginning answer to this question. How could Lawrence Douglas County use this funding opportunity to support and move forward some idea, some potential element of this framework? 
the way this is going to work in just a moment here, we're going to take some suggestions for topics or programmatic areas you'd like to host a discussion on. Um, there is a lot of shared opportunity here, but if you are suggesting an idea, uh, we'd also ask that you serve as the host for that idea. Uh, as many people as would like to, there's a worksheet that is posted in the chat. Please download that. Once the breakout rooms are created based on those topic areas, choose one and we'll have some uh, in the moment instruction at the time to help you find where to choose or to let you know uh, how to let Rexy know where to send you if you can't do that on your own. Once those rooms are started, the topic suggester is the host and will be asked to report on the discussion. Please appoint a note taker. If it helps you, use the worksheet that's in the chat to guide the discussion in the notes. If it doesn't help you, if it's not relevant to you, find your own way forward. And uh, even though you might start one room, uh, you're not required to stay there. You'll have the chance to move from room to room. Again, we're looking for answers or beginning answers to this question. How could Lawrence Douglas County use this funding opportunity to support and move forward your idea or your programmatic area? Uh, when we get to that point, you'll have until about 1140 in your breakout rooms. My hope now is to start generating some of those topics. So let me first ask, are there questions about the process before we start taking topics? Beth, I have a question. Yeah, thank you. Um, just, I was a little confused. Maybe I was distracted, which is highly possible. Are, we, are these topics gonna be about um, Sam's presentation and looking at how, to, or on the 20% that on the 20% Andy is shaking his head. Yes. But, but that's kind of not what the question is in the framework. It's what, what do we want in the framework? And yeah, so what, what uh, you know, like I, I would say that it, it's two things, but what I, what I don't want to do is like, I don't, I want to accept that housing first is part of the project okay. and then move on from there to what other components are needed in the service array. Right. Okay. So for example, you know, uh, Dana, I know that you're very interested in how can we serve families that are undercounted and underrepresented that may not be street homeless or chronically homeless. Right. Yeah. So if you wanted to host a group on that topic, this would be a time to do that. Okay. Um, so, but what, what I heard from Sam's excellent presentation was some effort we need to do to make massive improvements to get to that housing first thing. So I don't wanna lose that. I really want us to wrestle with that. How, where do we need to invest in those three major components that he mentioned numerous times? Because mm -hmm. we've got a lot of that system in place, but if we rework it and, and, and flip some of that power differential and all agree on some rules, we could really do, I don't wanna lose that opportunity with all these great people on this call. Yeah, well, and I think, um... You know, my hope certainly is is that today is not the end of the dialogue, right? Um, and I and I I do think that there will be this afternoon plenty of time for us to talk about the framework and okay and kind of dive into some of those issues around housing first again. Um, and I think that 
you know, some of what Sam talked about was, was, you know, how to address this other 20%. Um, you know, we've got textbooks and tons of information about how to do housing first. Um, what I, what we don't necessarily know at this point, or what I, I feel like I, I don't know, right, is what other components um, we might utilize these federal funds for in Lawrence that would help address um, the opportunities we talked about yesterday in the SORT analysis, and also how we might use um, funding to support um, uh, areas that may not fit into uh, the built for zero um, concept, right? So if, there's, if, there, if there are things outside of that that we want to include in the framework, I want to make sure we spend some of this time today in the small in the in the groups talking about those particular topics. Sure, I, I concur, and I don't want to just keep hammering this, but I mean those three components are create uh, a product for rent subsidy. We have the transitional voucher. We don't have nearly enough funding for that. Correct. Um, property management component. We have little pieces here and there. Nothing cohesive. And the third component that he said was the supportive team approach to this mobilization with entry from shelter and outreach. We don't do that well right now, little bits and pieces, but that is a huge effort that we could really make some massive improvement and a plan on to move a lot of folks out and also do the 20%. I think I just wanna make sure that we're not losing a big opportunity here to to look at our funding gaps um, and, and a plan to address those. Well, um, so let me see if I can see who all is on right now. Um, Thank you, Andy. Yep, yeah, hang on just a second, let me see if, so I think Renee said she had to step away and I think we, Shannon might've had to step away too. But Rebecca, you might be a good person to lead a topic discussion around the um, uh, one of those three areas, which was kind of the property management portion of it. Um, if you're willing to do that. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. And Shannon, would you be willing to kind of have a discussion about or lead a discussion about the, the voucher idea and having a community voucher program? Um, I, I don't mind, but Andy, I have to step away to meet to make a noon meeting. Okay, so, I thought maybe you did. I thought you had said something about that, so. Yeah, so I'm happy to participate in that, but somebody else would have to report out. Jill, would you be able to support Shannon in that? That. Or are you under time constraints too? No, I'm, I'm, I can help. Okay, so we can make, we can make community voucher program. Jill would be the, the report out person. Um, and then uh, for the third one, um, is, is there anybody that feels like they would be a good person to carry that torch in a topic room? I think if that's, if that's the services and treatment, um, I don't know, Stephen, if you can stick around for that, that might be a good fit for you. Um, it's like he's discussing something with someone right now. Um, I also think uh, 
Carrie, Carrie Nice might be good at that, good with that too, um, given her role with um, reentry. Was that a yes from someone? As uh, as our Carrie noted in the chat, you don't have to be an expert to be the host, just interested and willing to do a report. I can do it. That's fine. If anybody else is not available. All right. Thank you, Matthew. What other are you hoping to have a chance to talk about in this next half hour? I was interested in discussing what Andy called out uh, Dana <laughs> to lead a discussion on. Um, uh, community members, particularly uh, families with young children that are not technically considered how uh, homeless. All right, so Leah, can we put you down for that one as being the, the host? Sure. Okay. Uh, Unless Dana wants to. No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll co-host or whatever, but the, those, the families are also in all of those three components. I mean, oh, yeah, we, you know, yeah. Uh, if we've got a robust entry system and if we're following all the rules and requirements and we have a lot enough voucher and we're managing the property, not just like like the power differential is shifted. So we actually have housing specialists on our team and peer advocates that would help families tremendously. And that's what we're trying to do at Family Promise just with very limited resources. So I can see the value in that for sure. And all those three components, it seems kind of so obvious. <laughs> well, and, well, and honestly, to follow up on that, um, the voucher program only really works if we also have the support services, um, particularly for um, folks coming out of homelessness. So, I mean, to me, those are connected. <laughs> Um, I'll make sure to make that connection in my group with the services. Great. They are all, right. all connected. Yeah, and move? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, please go talk ahead, about yeah. it in the small. <laughs> well, I guess I've just been sitting here thinking about um, sort of the the population that we've been prioritizing without um, being explicit about it, what communities those uh, community members might belong to and who it's leaving out. So if we're unintentionally prioritizing males, for example, or white males, um, because I've heard, um, you know, that prioritizing um, people who are chronically homeless um, as defined by the COC um, and, you know, a, a lot of um, information about, you know, housing first uh, rooted in sort of a recovery model, which is awesome and not that women or families with young children don't fall into that, but just want to be explicit in the conversation about um, BIPOC families and families with young children. 
I think if there's a BIPOC conversation that needs to be led by a person of color, I'll just throw that in there. I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out. <laughs> um, and I, I am not trying to advocate f for this necessarily, but I'm just, I'm just wondering from uh, the group, um, what thoughts are about a topic on emergency sheltering, just from the perspective that, uh, you know, developing rapidly developing that ability to uh, you know, get people off the street very quickly for a short duration of time is a huge undertaking. And we all saw and experienced um, this last year, uh, how distracting that can be um, and taking resources and effort away from our long-term vision. And so I, I just wonder if there's a need to discuss kind of that, that component of the system um, for some, some sort of organization and, and capacity so that we can, we can be stable there. And Brandon, this is Shannon. I, I would echo that it's it's imperative to do that because none of the the voucher programs we have can I make happen in 48 hours. Yeah. Um, and what we run into, and you know, Matthew can chime in on this, is we once we get ready, sometimes we can't find the people um to try to house them. And so it's really, I mean. I really view an emergency shelter as critical as a place where where people can be safely and not freezing and and have some of all those other supports while we get through these processes because I mean there it it, it takes a while. Yeah, I, I would also add to the emergency shelter um, post COVID non congregate shelter. What does that look like? And in some sense, I think that could also be, and I'm not a part of that group, but if it's non-congregate shelter, which means it's something where people have access to their own space, I mean, we could be real creative with that. That's all I'll say, you know, that, that could be like a little house, <laughs> but I'll stop there. Yeah, we're already planting seeds for these discussions. Uh, if we offer these five as rooms, will everyone who's participating today have a place at least to start? I think I'm seeing yeses to that. Um, Mariel? Yes, I'm so sorry. Um I add that I do want to just go back to the conversation on addressing non-white individuals experiencing homelessness in this crisis and I, I think it I did not mean to say that to deter it being a topic because I think it's incredibly important but I also think we need to have a very real discussion of who is not in the room right now I see myself and one other person that I can probably identify as a person of color and that's it and so I think that is um, an incredible misfortune today. And maybe that's just people's time and space. Um, 
but that needs to be a prioritized conversation. I just don't know if this is the space to do it because we do not have um, equity in this representation right now. Right? I just yeah. need to yeah, put let's... that in. So I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I personally can't lead the conversation because I am working right now, but um, I just need that to be something that's voiced. Thank yeah. You. So, so Mariel, one of the things I'll say is that, um, like, again, I don't expect that today is the last day that we're going to have the opportunity to engage, right? So we need more engagement with people of lived experience, and we need more engagement with BIPOC populations, right? Um, but I, I feel like those are conversations that can be prioritized um, after today. Um the, the framework that we're gonna hopefully have at the end of the day is gonna be something that is still gonna have a lot of room for people to um, flush out. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more this afternoon too. But I do think that it's, it's not appropriate to have the conversation without the people in the room. Okay, thank you so much. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't completely dismissing the suggestion, but also being very hyper vigilant of what who's being represented right now. So thank you for that. Yeah, thank you for that vigilance and for uh, all of these discussions. Oh, please. This is Abigail. This is Abigail with Catholic Charities. Um, yes, I agree with you, Mario. That is an important um, conversation to have regarding people of color, and for us to say to discuss a conversation when people are absent it's inaccurate because we have some representation. So if people wants to discuss that, the few who are there can raise some concerns and the conversation can be you know, expanded in the future. Thank you, Abigail. Yes, thank you, Abigail, I appreciate that. So as these topic discussions move forward, let's recognize uh, that these rooms are uh, overwhelmingly made up of white people, and we bring in our blind spots and privilege in those discussions uh, and uh, just acknowledge that there are going to be limitations because of what we uh, bring in and what we don't bring in. The purpose of moving to the work, I'm going to suggest that we land on these as our topics for today. Uh, I'm going to suggest that the uh, that the property management group be in the main room. So if that's the room that you're interested in, uh, you won't need to select anything and that the other rooms become breakout rooms that you'll be able to select. Rexy, I know we're making your work challenging here. Will you let us know when we have breakout rooms um, created and then we can help people get where they wanna go? I have already made them. All right. So for most of you on your screens, you'll see an op bottom for breakout rooms. And if you click that option, you'll see a list of the rooms available to you. You have to scroll down past a long group of people. And when you see the topic that you'd like to discuss to the right of it, there's what will either look like a blue number or a blue word join. If 
you highlight that and click that, you should be able to select it and join. Looks like most of you are finding it. I'm sorry, could you uh, repeat that? I, I had a, a text I was responding to. Certainly, David. Um, uh, so on most platforms, if you look at the bottom of your screen, you'll have a choice to select breakout rooms. And when you do that, you'll see a list that you may need to scroll through. If you scroll down, you'll start seeing topics like voucher program and services and treatment. If you choose the one you're interested in and look to the right of it, there will be a blue number or the blue word join. And if you hover over that, you should be able to click the word join and go there. And if you are still here in this main room and you are wanting to talk about something other than property management, let Rexy know and they can move you where you want to go. All right, Rebecca, I believe you're the host of this conversation. And right now you've got a whole bunch of us Wichita State people in here. We won't all stay in here with you. <laughs> Please stay with us. We don't want to be a tiny group. Um, we'll be tiny but mighty. Um, so it looks like I have for sure Abigail and John and Rochelle. Um who else? Just John and Abigail, I guess. I see Megan, Renee, Steve. Oh, Steve is here too. Renee, I think is gone. Mm -hmm. um, Megan, are you with us? Yes, I'm with WSU though. Oh, okay, thank you. Um, there is Andy Brown as well. And there's Andy. Okay. Well, um, and Dana, are you with us? Well, I was going to get a different option, but I never got a different option, Andy. So if, if I was going to go into services, but Andy, you're muted. Well, it doesn't help much if I'm muted, but there's there's the three dots on the bottom of the screen that say more. Do you see those? Oh, now you're muted, Dana. <laughs> you guys go on. I'll figure it out. <laughs> but if you if you click on those three dots at the bottom that say more, that'll bring up uh, a little button that says join breakout room, and that'll bring your options back up, and you can join. Join your group from there. I don't see any dots for more. Really? So like the part that has like the mute and the stop video at the very yeah. end. So do you want it to go to the services group? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's where okay. I'll sign you there. Okay. Thank you. 
Bye, guys. Bye. And Leah, are you joining us? I is this your group? Yep. Okay. Yes. Or did you want to be okay? <laughs> well, um, let's get started. I I loved the presentation this morning. Um, I'll tell you as a landlord that does supportive service housing and works with individuals that sometimes don't, you know, want to do, want to complete their rights and responsibilities in a lease. And we're constantly balancing where the, you know, what is healthy boundaries and, and balance on that to be supportive. And yet, how do you make sure that you're not someone isn't destroying resources for that could someone else could be using, right? I mean, that's ultimately the challenge. If we had unlimited resources, I'd house everybody, of course. Um, <laughs> but that issue of, you know, uh, so it was really helpful to hear what I heard that I don't always hear is that there has to be lease rights and we respect people's choices, but that also means that they can be ev evicted or the rules, there's a learning process for that and they can come back. So I think that's the challenge with property management is how do you, how do you make things trauma informed and give people every support and service to be successful, but how do you draw that balance when they are no longer successful, they need different services than what certain programs can provide, or they are not willing to do that. And in my mind, trauma informed still says they are willing to make that choice and live with some of the consequences. Um, but that is a much easier said than done, right? <laughs> And so what kind of supports, what kind of property management or supports do we need? What kind of programs, what kind of, you know, of course my goal would be to have most of these kind of houses with supportive services owned by the trust and outside of the rental market that is, um, has a, you know, a, power structure that we, we just talked about. <laughs> um, so co-ops or nonprofit ownership does change that power dynamic. But let's say we can't get all the units we need and we need some scattered sites among regular property management. What what do we need to make that work? So, or, or whatever ideas you have, I guess, brainstorm. <laughs> yeah, so, and, and let me just say real quick, like, um, does everybody understand the topic of trying to create a um, sort of a, a property management component for this? Because is there, do we kind of share an agreement about what that is and what that looks like? Well, that could be the first discussion. How do we, how do we see that? What does that look like? Yep. I'll mostly take notes. But. I mean, in my mind, the market does not provide, generally does not provide property management resources that allow for people that need supportive services to function and be housed. They do not want to deal with that. I mean, the reason we, we saw that in, 
the CARES money. We had millions, a million dollars to give to landlords and they didn't want to work with that program and get their money because they wanted to get rid of people that were difficult or they considered, you know, weren't following the rules. So I don't know. There's part of me that says if we have enough money, the more we can put that outside of the market economy, the more successful we'll be because that's been my experience over the last 20 years. Um, but I know sometimes that isn't completely doable. But well, a asking okay. the rental market to provide services that they have no intention or no incentive to provide, and maybe that's the question is what incentives would change that? But expecting them to do something different is is stupid. Yeah, we. I agree with you, Rebecca. You know, being someone who has provided case management for quite a long time, trying to house people, the market is not fair. The market is challenging. Um, the policies are the, the huge barrier for the folks that we work with. We are all aware, for the most part, people who are on the streets or camping, or they've huge barriers. So even if we say we wanted to provide services, services, yes, are available, but can we provide them when they're on the streets? Can we provide those services when they are camping? Can they even start looking for a job when they are camping? It's challenging. So my idea is therefore there to be a relationship between landlords and the community. I don't know if it's something that can start as um, police change from maybe the county or the city for the city to have some kind of a relationship with landlords. It is not everyone who has past criminal history who is going to be a criminal when they get housed. But we realize that once there's that criminal history, housing is a challenge. We have a gentleman right now who has made so many changes in his life we can't find a place for him because they say it's recent. So once that's there, so if there's any kind of a relationship between the city and landlords, maybe it's selecting some landlords, quite a number, not just one landlord. We have James Dan, we know he can rent to so many people, but he cannot rent for everyone. So if there can be a relationship between the city, the county, try to lure as many landlords as they can to be prepared to participate and engaging in this rehousing process. That would help us a lot. So one thing that comes to mind is when you're thinking about talking about landlords, it's basically, am I gonna get my money? Is my property gonna be respected? And are the folks gonna help? Are they gonna disrupt the quality of life of the neighbors, right? And that doesn't matter whether they're in <clears throat> they're coming from homelessness or their students. It's all the same deal. Mm -hmm. Am I going to get my rent? I think is mitigated to some extent by Section 8. So you're always going to get something. So that's a plus. That's actually an incentive. Is my property going to da be damaged? Um, one of the incentives that I've heard of is <clears throat> some sort of a, maybe a countywide fund where a landlord can apply and say, I'm taking a chance on someone with Section 8. If they damage my property, can I go back to that fund 
and get some compensation, get some help with repairing my property. Therefore, I'm willing to, to take a higher risk than I would normally. And that's something I forget, honestly, where I heard this. It's not my idea, but it sort of makes sense to me. And I think you can develop it in such a way that it has the potential to be a win-win. Um, and so that mitigates to some extent that. And also I would encourage us to include not just new landlords that, but existing landlords. I don't want to spend a huge amount of time to get eight new landlords while on the other end I'm losing 10. So that's one thing. And in terms of the neighborhood, I think encouraging case managers and others to figure out what sort of property is a good fit and to help and guide the, the clients to that property, but also help them understand what their responsibilities are. So the, ooh, what happened? Um, and so for example, the uh, housing authority has their um, required um, courses. We have keys to good tenancy at Family Promise, and you know, sitting down with folks and saying, you know, what sort of neighbors do you want, and what sort of neighbors do you want to be? And I'll stop now because I see a hand up. Steve. Yeah, um, our mayor Finkelguy, one of our great advocates, who's right in stride with what you all are doing here. He. He's talked about a master lease through the city where their insurance could do what John's suggesting, you know, a countywide pool, which others have warned me is kind of more dangerous if you have a pot of money. Certainly landlords will want to extricate that. I mean, if the damages exceed the first and last month's rent, then um, I think that's, I think a lot of it is a phobia, but you all would know better, especially Rebecca and how landlords respond. But I mean, to me, that there's two million dollar questions, and one: if we can't, if we can't engage the landlords here, so they can be made satisfied that our tenants are going to be no different than college student tenants, maybe better, you know, results in terms of the care of their property and the behaviors. Um, my question is: is that tenable with a master lease kind of program? where they could be made whole. I mean, the landlords I talk to that I try to engage to, to serve our people, they tell me of a time where they lost $7,000. And that's kind of the end of the discussion for them, not because they're heartless, but because they can't afford to lose another, in their mind, I'm going to have another 7,000 and I had to recoup from that. So there's a balancing point of how we make that whole, how we make that work or, or and the master lease seemed like a good thing. The second thing I wanted to share that I've been on this for a couple of years now, after I talked with Brian Jimenez at the city inspectors about properties, he said numerous times, thousands of properties that are out of, uh, out of code that were created either before those codes were made or since where people have extra properties, they're over density for a, a single unit and they have multiple units that they're renting. And the city started going after them with, forceful letters. I saw one where they're basically saying, you tear this down, you know, you're out of code. And I'm like, hold on a second, Rebecca and Shannon and uh, 
Dana can use these properties, they can be leveraged at that point sensibly and equitably to them as well to say, make the other property safe and affordable permanently or tear it down. And when you think about Brian Jimenez saying thousands of units, thousands of properties that are over. So if there's one extra property, even if we captured 500 of these, I mean, it seems like a really million dollar idea. We met with Danny uh, Walters and the city about it, but I was busy with the winter shelter, so I missed the meeting, but I heard it was fruitful that the city and Brad, uh, they, they were saying it has, it wasn't negative, the outcome. I thought maybe they'd, they'd say why that wouldn't work. But to me, that's a giant step of existing properties we can turn in to cause to be made affordable because these people are out of compliance with the rules and codes of the city. We, with the new ARM program, we're really looking at, are there that many properties that are just sitting there? Now, again, what you're speaking to, Steve, might be properties that are out of code compliance, but they're renting one or two of them now. Um, but I will say there, there, there hasn't been that many that we found. Um, so I don't, again, our supply issue is, is pretty non-existent <laughs> for creatively turning things into, into units. Um, but I think, you know, John, to your point, risk mitigation and incentive factors are probably the easiest and quickest way with money to get units to take on the challenge of um, folks that they normally wouldn't rent to. And then I guess, you know, the point of a program that has all of these three pieces, so additional property management, what would that look like? I think um, the housing, uh, the landlord liaison is interesting and we, this is brand new in our community, so we don't really know what that looks like yet. But I think that's a great example of just when when I was running HSC, when we were doing that, there was definitely calls when something came up, the landlord would call us and you just need someone there that they can reach out to, which I'm thinking is what what's his name was talking about in property management, that there's somebody else that that landlord, that market rate landlord can call in an, when there's an issue um, and have those that relationship building and those conversations um, with that landlord that they don't just feel like there's no one here to help if I, if I feel like something's going on and I don't know how to deal with it. Um, so to me, that's part of the case management almost for the landlord um, to make this supportive service housing work of, you know, say there is an incident at the unit, you know, does the landlord get a call? Because I think those are the kind of things that break down a landlord's ability to work with somebody in the future. Um, what other things, you know, Abby and Leah and John, you know, in the trenches of, of situations that come up, what, how would a property manager or someone that can intervene be helpful in those situations? 
or can you think of examples? I, I work better when I get an actual story. <laughs> well, are, you, are you thinking about um, someone like the liaison at the housing authority to intercede between the landlord and... Um, I think there are a lot of ways. I mean, first, giving someone, someone they can talk to, vent and listen, will listen to them is a big deal. Right. Um, we talked about mitigation strategies. I think having some of those is a big deal. Um, obviously, having some level of case management support where someone can go and talk to the, the client. First of all, listen to them, get their side of it. Um, and obviously, we've talked about, you know, the op we talked earlier about the open door policy where it's not really them, but it's their friend, and I use the word friend loosely, um, <clears throat> that has the issues. And so some way of helping them understand, hey, this is an opportunity for you, but it's important. Um, I I hope that we can move beyond just how to work with market rate landlords, though, because um, Abigail raised a point at the start of this conversation that, you know, a lot of landlords won't take um, people coming out of incarceration um, or with criminal backgrounds. Um, and then, uh, and then, in addition, even if there are vouchers, there's still a lot of discrimination and choice that landlords are having over that, so that they're picking who they consider to be deserving or trustworthy or whatever based on race and gender and probably a whole other host of factors. And so, um, and so that's why I'm really resonating with Rebecca's initial comment and sort of my post about what are ways that we can create more sort of landlord tenant situations outside of that capitalist exploitive structure um, to have more nonprofits um, as landlords and owning property and build in the supportive services that are needed. And so that discrimination and that access, the discrimination is not, um, or, or is being counteracted and the access is being opened. Um, yeah. Abigail, did you? <laughs> yeah, and the only other thing I was going to, and yes, I, that's true, um, owning properties. Actually, yesterday I was here in California is in the process of purchasing motels and hotels to house people. So, you know, if the city can have their own properties, I, I don't know about the expense of managing those properties, but it's, you know, it's something in the right direction, having some properties that, we can house people, but at the same time, we still need the support of the existing landlords because we will not have enough supportive housing for everyone. So if that relationship with the landlords and having extra housing for, for the folks that we work with, and we know with the vouchers, they are not available for everyone immediately. That's where we have these other programs that are not long-term, but short-term, and landlords will not accept those short-term programs. So if we had those kind of city-owned homes where people can transition maybe into the voucher program or anything like that. 
Um, quick, quick technical question. Um, does the city own houses and running sort of programs similar to tenant homeowners and the LDCHA? No. no, the city doesn't own or manage anything. I mean, they own properties for most of the time. That's like um, they got land or something for drainage easements. You know, there's some purpose for infrastructure that they own something. The city does like or Ohio Street was a weird situation where there's a a sewer pipe going under a house. So they bought that house. So there's usually some weird situation for those. It's not like they own a bunch of property we could just use easily. Um, but that's, you know, those are, and I think many of us in affordable housing and property ownership and management have gone to the city. I, I think we'll need to do some new stuff um, to add units to that. One is, you know, the trailer park that no one loves on East 15th is for sale right now. I could imagine that being a really good use of federal money um, to purchase that and say, we'll take a, a um, you know, economically debilitating system, a trailer park, which I, you know, don't think does anyone well, um, and purchase that and then be able to put in small housing when, when Matthew was talking about um, uh, the issue of having damage proof housing where people were, you know, some of that 20% that, um, that need kind of their own little space. Um, I was thinking, gosh, that could really be where you build very small, durable units. Um, and again, control that space, you know, owned by the nonprofit, collaborated by different agencies that provide supportive services. I guess tenants to homeowners has really been moving towards that, that we know how to manage properties. We are not we are not experts at domestic violence services or, um, you know, kids aging out of the foster care services, but how can we get some properties, provide our management services that are very trauma informed and, and don't have a profit motive um, and provide those services so that we can create some supportive service housing for different specific targeted populations. I mean, I think we could have 10 houses for people with mental illness that need supportive service, you know, permanent supportive service housing. You know, Oxford House is such a great example, I think. Sure. Can't we do that for any number of targeted populations where we do just use some of this federal money coming down to buy houses mm -hmm. and put them in. We have a community housing trust that can do property management. Uh, we have a housing authority that can do property management. And then we collaborate with service providers. And I love that idea too, because it allows us to scatter those sites. Yeah. Hey, um, first of all, I know Steve wants to uh, jump in. I also, when he's done, I just have one very quick point I'd like to add. Steve, go ahead. Sorry, I, uh, we met with uh, Mayor Finkeldye yesterday with Justice Mayor's Homeless Group, and he gave me some really interesting stats. They're working towards uh, the purchase and development of 200 properties as their goal, and that includes uh, that 15th and Bob Billings, five acres, utilizing that, the 4th and Indiana property, Oakham Park, 
This is all ideas, of course. I don't mean to hold anyone to the fire, but the fact that the city's aggressively, I mean, he, he, he had this stuff in his mind. He didn't have it written down or anything. Uh, downtown, they have a, a apartment there. Uh, they want to replicate the cottages and have mobile units that they can put out. Uh, of course, the Monarch Village is looking at expanding and putting uh, 10 more of those kind of things on the west side. Uh, portable housing units, uh, the Clinton Parkway to add to that, uh, I think double that capacity is what they had planned on for seniors. DECA, DECA and First Step adding 10 units. I mean, there's a lot, and, and I don't say this to anything but but uh, energy to, to go back to the city with a lot of planning that they're doing to take that responsibility for actually creating units which is as you said Rebecca I didn't I didn't think they were doing that before so uh, Steve do you want to drop that list in the chat so I can cut and paste it yeah I just don't know I mean I can't think he told it to a, a large group of us so I can't think I'd be doing anything wrong to mention the ideas that that had come up through the city to do, to do this all yeah, well, in the this spirit of yeah the city is an active participant in the summit so yeah I I, maybe maybe better to have Brandon summarize that because I one thing I've learned is I don't want to over speak uh, on my enthusiasm in other <laughs> words I'm just a messenger maybe let Brandon. Uh, report that I'm sure he's he's integral to this discussion I had with Brad. Yeah, I think so, I've heard several of those ideas, Steve. That so yeah, I think they're all just kind of in that envisioning idea process. Yeah, um, I'd rather have Brett, Brandon report it though, if that's okay, Andy. If you can get with him, have the city give what they wish to say to this group. Uh, but I wanted to say that because we're talking about how we're going to get our own properties, which I agree we need permanent affordable housing. And can't depend on the landlords, you know. And I brought that up first, so I went backwards of of what I what I wanted to hear. Okay. Ahead, well, John. the point for this conversation, I guess, being that there's some creative ways outside of, as Leah mentioned, outside of you know the normal market economy, rental market, that we can get some properties. And I think that those projects have to be creative. And, um, and yeah, the more the city can help us access those or get those or subsidize those. And I think that's part of this discussion too, of how do we bring those, those um, sites up to say, hey, here's 10 projects for this money, right? Um, how do we acquire those? Um, and, and I think there's a, I think there is a nice list in the last few months, of, you know, five to 10 different sites that seem very doable. So maybe one of our goals is really getting that list to all the right people um, and, and planting those, those seeds. Um, um, sorry. John, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to be inviting the other groups back to the main room because uh, our time is up. So uh, okay. people will be coming back in. Okay, can I just add one quick comment? Uh, I think there are some excellent organizations doing this work. I'd hate the city to build another organization that parallels tenants to homeowners, parallels other things that are going on. Let's get the houses and not focus on the process or, um, well, you know the right. <laughs> 
Right, because as we're talking about uh, um, the need for particular populations, there's also just that housing is unaffordable for a lot of people in Lawrence. And so um, that's a parallel sort of discussion to supported housing. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes, and uh, apologies to people who were in the property management group as we're dropping in on the end of your conversation. Uh, we have eight minutes for, I believe, four reports. So that means 90 seconds to two minutes each. We recognize we're not going to hear everything you talked about, but could we hear just a couple of things? Uh, let's turn first, please, to the property management group. Rebecca, are you uh, ready to jump in? Yeah. Um... We just did a lot of brainstorming, so we weren't very organized, I have to acknowledge. But one of the tenants, we we know we may need landlords in the market to participate, and we think they need incentives and risk mitigation to really be part of that, and that part of that property management needs to be in creating risk mitigation incentive programs and having someone they can call when there's a situation um, that is stressful to them to keep them you know participating and renting to people that may need supportive services and of course the quality of supportive services and the quality of the subsidy and making that rental affordable all leads to more possibility with that you know, being more successful. So, you know, those three prongs all have to be there. But we feel like most landlords have had an experience where they lost $7,000 in damage or destruction. And the only way to bring them back to working with tenants is to provide some risk mitigation. But we also acknowledge with that, that there is a limit to the, in the, in the profit market, there is a limit to that. And we, we really strongly believe the more we can use these resources to use nonprofit ownership, co-ops, other things outside of the market economy in owning these properties, the longer we can keep them affordable and the more likely we can you know, continue to serve harder populations that won't be successful 100% of the time. And particularly for those 20% that we are talking about, um, you know, having uh, ownership structures or management structures that really acknowledge um, the challenges with that and bring all the right supports to the table and are not really motivated by profit. So I know I'm always like, go non, not for profits, but that in this particular case, that makes a lot of sense. And we have a lot of great not-for-profits in Lawrence that can do some of that work. So if we're using funding to buy properties, we really would love for that to be in the nonprofit sector. It just gets, you know, as much as can be possible, but we know we need the for-profit sector to help as well. And so then again, incentive and risk mitigation is what we kind of focused on. Thank you for that, Rebecca. And I know there's more to that. Uh, so this is just the two minute version for now. Jill, can we turn to you for the two minute version of the community voucher program discussion? Um, well, we discussed 
uh, we know that similar models work in the community because um, uh, the housing authority has received county funding for a, a, for a similar um, smaller scale uh, voucher program for the last few years that um, offers it's a transitional housing voucher um, called New Horizons and it's targeted to families that are exiting um, exiting the Lawrence Community Shelter. That's how it's been staged historically. Um, it is paired with case management services that are that are provided by um, partners like Family Promise. That case management piece or um, the need for some sort of a higher level care coordination piece is needed to be successful. Um, but the success rate of that program alone, which again, it's got funding from, it's a non-HUD funded voucher, provides flexibility and allows you to get past some of the barriers that federally funded um, vouchers traditionally present. Um, so in that vein, um, we know similar models, models like that work. Um, and we would like to encourage our partners at the state to look at um, looking at implementing some sort of a, a voucher program across the state that could because this could serve all communities. So we looked at um, one model that I brought to the group was um, the in the state of Georgia they have a uh, program that is a run by their KDAD like department. Um, that offers these kind of programs. It's the Georgia Housing Voucher and Pro Program and Bridge Funding. So it would be great to have a state program like that. So we wouldn't have to have the push-pull each budget year at a local level to fund them at the county and the city. Um, but so that's one thing I want to set aside. What the county and the city could do or what we could do locally, though, is help provide the market incentives to make sure that we have the actual units to put to use these vouchers and that's going to be an issue it's an issue today so we need to get serious about landlord incentives um, and engaging landlords in a real and meaningful way so that we can have more units that are available to us um, for this program and just the regular section eight vouchers um, that are already um, available in the community today um, and then the last thing is you know i talked about care coordination rather than case management um, we need to make sure that we are thinking about peers and integrating them into that work, um, the care coordination piece, but also, you know, using care coordination along with um, housing navigation and making sure that the housing navigation piece includes peers as well um, and has or has flexibility to incorporate a peer driven model for housing navigation and care coordination services. Um, as a part of that, we have some models that are working in that vein in the Housing Stabilization Collaborative, um, the work that Gabby does. Um, so we, we have a lot of really viable partners, and we know some things that do work on a local level, um, but it will be great to um, have some funding to see that work, um, to have more sustainability for it, to make it more predictable. Shannon's got a landlord liaison position that I, she may have mentioned that's coming online with the housing authority. It's funded by ESG grant. It's a one-time grant. So the position, the funding for that position will go away at the end of this year. Hopefully we can have a proof of concept that that position need, continues on, but that would be a great way to use some of these federal dollars to make that a more sustainable position, um, at least for a couple more years. So again, we can have a greater proof of concept for the work that that position could do in getting more landlords on board and figuring out what kind of incentives they need to 
work with our partners in the community. Yeah, this is really great work and sets you up for the afternoon and for ongoing work really well. Uh, Matthew, uh, could you offer a brief report from the service discussion? Yeah. So we basically um, addressed the, kind of the needs of, uh, in the short term, the creation of a team, a robust team that's probably going to need to be quite, that will need to be quite large, that involves specializations from multiple, many areas, ranging from mental health to developmental disabilities, families, uh, jail, and law uh, issues um, that uh, we listed the, the partners that are all involved in that and that will likely need to be involved in that. Um, we talked about the, um, the things that will likely need to change and or be addressed in order to make something like that a reality in, such as the correct kind of oversight and management of the program to ensure that the staff have the right type of support. Um, that's kind of a short-term <clears throat> need um, we talked about the longer term needs of working with the providers that exist to ensure that they have the appropriate services to meet the needs over long term. And, and well, I'm going to back up a little bit, um, working with that initial group to create something that really reduces handoffs, that uh, even has the possibility of providing a supportive service that can follow someone from the very beginning all the way to the end, right? That you have uh, a few providers that are in with that are present in the first point of contact, but they don't go away. That they're that that social service provision is able to accompany them with the same staff, at least a few of those staff, uh, all the way through their service provision uh, to the end. Um, <clears throat> um, okay, I'm drifting off here. I've, I've got a bunch of other things going on in my head. Um, so. One is looking at just the spectrum of services that needed to be provided and looking at how they need to be integrated with each other to be more coordinated and to work as a team, um, really talking about wrapping that around the individual. Um, anyone, am I missing something here? <clears throat> Zane, oh, another thing I would like I forgot the very end Zane is um, creating a physical space that is common for all those service providers. So like a social service center, that's a longer term need as well, that uh, it's a space where they can all meet and work together. It's also a one-stop shop for the consumer where they can go to one location and get all their social service needs. So they can connect with an SUD provider. They can connect with them and all provider. They can connect with a family and domestic violence provider all in one location. Uh, that would also help with outreach. So rather than an outreach person having to go to five different locations out in the community, they can go to one place with their client and that client can do everything they need in that one place. They can apply for housing, for example, also in the same place. Um, that would also be a longer term need. Um, some other kind of specific needs that we kind of drilled down into were like, for example, inpatient substance use services for men. Um, we don't have a male inpatient facility in the county, um, so that would be a longer-term development need. Um, but really, that's in the category of just assessing um, with working, getting all the providers together to a greater extent to, to both coordinate their services and to assess the level of need beyond just that initial point of contact outreach and then case management throughout the tenure of the client's 
supportive needs. <clears throat> Terrific. Thank you, Matthew. And thank you for that group. Uh, Brandon shared the notes from the emergency sheltering conversation in the chat. If any of the rest of you have written notes, please either drop those in the chat or email them to Carrie. Her email address is in the chat. Uh, Brandon, could you give us a one minute top three items from your discussion? Sure. I'll just say if all the other groups do their work, then we don't need ours. So, um, but uh, really, the I think the the one of the main issues that we talked about with emergency sheltering is just the need um, for a for stability, for predictability, um, a lead agency, uh, and, and I think we have some of some of that framework in place, definitely. Um, and so I, I think there's a, there's a good foundation to, to build on, but we want predictability, stability, professionalism of the program um, to provide a, a, a program that um, reduces barriers to entry, uh, whether those are you know, safety related, uh, rule related or, or what, um, and, and just have that level of, of stability in, in that particular component of the system. Fantastic. As we move towards our break, uh, Carrie did drop in the chat a couple of files. Uh, we had some people who were having trouble with Word documents earlier. So these are PDFs of the notes from yesterday's work. Um, if you want some homework over lunch, you can grab those and review them so that you can bring all of that good work you've already accomplished into the afternoon time. We will be back at one o'clock, ready to move this forward. Thank you for your very good work and your attention this morning. See you in an hour. All right, I am gonna put uh, in the chat one more time, you've seen this many times in the last two days, but one more time, the purpose of our uh, work together. And that is to establish a framework to connect all efforts to address housing and homelessness in Lawrence Douglas County and identify areas where investment and support may be needed. And I just wanna hear from a few of you, just how are we doing? You've spent a day and a half talking about this purpose. So how are, how are we doing in general? What's working for you so far? Do you mean, how are you doing in the facilitation of the process or how do we think we're doing in uh, progressing towards the goal? I would love to hear how you all are doing. Sorry, I shouldn't have used we, right? <laughs> not, not the CEI team. How are you all in Lawrence Douglas County? How are you all doing so far in uh, making progress toward establishing this framework or getting more clarity around where you're going? I think I feel that this is a really good uh, in-depth conversation and it's addressing a lot of things that um, I know are of, of, of great concern to service providers as well as just community members. Um, when, when, like, I don't know if it's a fatigue, but just something that kept coming to my mind and maybe something that uh, can be planned for future discussion is really talking about um, alternative solutions that do not require landlord investment in providing housing first. 
um, options. Um, I think that especially in Lawrence, uh, during this pandemic, we have seen landlords be one of the root causes of homelessness um, because of the um, inability to accept uh, vouchers, to accept rental assistance. And it's not because, you know, I, I know that there's some, some tension there, but I think there really needs to be a conversation on um, if we don't have the buy-in from, from landlords of, of doing housing first efforts, where do we then go and who holds that and making sure that the group that, or, you know, groups that maybe decide to start investing in properties are centered in justice and not seeing this as an investment opportunity, but truly as housing, because I do feel like we have some of the infrastructure already, so it doesn't necessarily mean we have to start building things, um, but what do we have now and how can we get organizations rooted in justice to support that? So uh, I know that was a little off topic, but that, I just feel yeah. like that that was a, a big conversation piece that needed to happen. Thanks, Muriel. And I think that, you know, obviously there's more conversation that's going to have to happen before you are all ready to be able to have a cohesive plan that you're ready to present. So, um, so for those of you that are joining us now, the question that I'm offering just to get us started is, you've, many of you have spent now the last day and a half having lots of conversations. And I just wanna know how you feel you are doing as far as making progress toward getting more clarity, getting more ideas to where you wanna go, et cetera. Um, I think that, uh... Uh, we're, we're making some pretty good progress. I think the big key thing here is there are so many different players here, not only among service providers, but, you know, good, strong community members and people from the city and the county. They're all here. They're people who aren't aware of the situation as, as well as I would like are being made more aware. Um, we're getting a lot of feedback as, as a service provider. I am getting a lot of feedback from, from talking to these other groups. And so I think it's been very positive so far. Thanks, David. Anybody else? Okay. Um, Andy, I see that you are back. So I was going to call on you here in just a second to help us think through next steps. But one, one thing I would like for everybody to do, um, I don't know if you've recognized how many things have been put in the chat. <laughs> so lots of documents have been put in the chat. And it those documents represent a lot of the work that you've been doing the last day and a half. And so there's a lot of good conversation and key elements of what could be part of a framework included in those. So I just wanted to give everyone about three minutes or so to locate those documents, um, have a look at those, especially any of the groups that you were not a part of, because all of that information is potentially part of how you take this work forward. I can learn to understand you much better if I can get familiar with the way you... <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right. So um, please take a moment then. Carrie's reposting some things. 
uh, but please take a moment to pull those up for yourself so that you can see, you should have like the sort document, this environmental scan document, you had some group notes from today. Lots of good conversation. And then Andy, I wanted to, to ask you to help us think about this idea of framework. So we've been stating our purpose is um, to be able to establish a framework to connect all efforts to address housing and homelessness. Mm -hmm. And so we're not talking about um, that our time is to be used to create the plan, right. creating a framework for the community. So Andy, can you say a little bit more about your thoughts on that and what you're hope what you're hopeful for that people might be able to have made more progress on in yeah. this yeah um and so when uh when we met with the city and the county uh, to talk about this um you know we really wanted to be able to come in and provide some technical assistance to the community that would help aid in um planning and structuring um around this particular topic and with the goal being that then that information and framework could be used to flush out proposals and um, develop a plan for the community around housing and um, you know yesterday when I was talking about the various funding sources and the different buckets of funding that are available. I think one of the things that's important is that we wanna include in our framework, the types of things that are likely to be common amongst proposals or uh, requests for funding, right? Um, because we are gonna see a lot of different funding opportunities that are available to the nonprofits in the community that are available to the city and the county and the school district that are available uh, through the state. And um, those, those opportunities um, will present themselves at different points in time. And the idea behind having a comprehensive plan or a framework for the community is that you can then be prepared to take advantage of those opportunities when they arise and plug in those funding streams or those buckets into your overall cost of the programs, right? So as an example, right, like KDADS is going to be able to come in and support housing first projects for folks with severe and persistent mental illness, right? Um, and for folks with SUD, uh, disabilities, right? So, so that's an area that I can speak to and say like, KDADS is gonna have a funding opportunity that will support that work in Douglas County, right? What I, what I don't know, right, are what other opportunities out of all of those millions of dollars that are available that tenants to homeowners might be able to apply for or that um, uh, Family Promise might be able to apply for, or the Lawrence Community Shelter, right? But by having a shared community vision and a framework, it makes it that much easier to plug in those funding opportunities when they become available, and then make that part of the overall effort 
um, that's going on in the community. And KHRC, which we brought yesterday to talk about their programs and opportunities that they were anticipating going through their agency. Those are also gonna be things that require separate applications or um, you know, separate proposals, right? So when I said yesterday, like I want you to envision, you know, something that that is a complete plan, right? But isn't connected to the dollars. My goal here is, is that what I'd like to be able to do is to work with KHRC to kind of piece together what portions KDAS can fund, what portions KHRC can fund, and then maybe even, you know, work with Lawrence and Douglas County to help identify other um, streams within that ARPA Act that might be able to fund components and pieces of the plan. So what, I, what, I, what I'm hoping that we can do as a community in this next segment is sort of identify what needs, what our need statement is, right? What do we need? What is our proposed solution to that need? And you know, talk about what our uh, sustainability might look like and maybe what our uh, budget might look like. I think those are going to be the components that you're going to see in just about every federal proposal opportunity that comes down the pike. And if you can start to build that and use that framework as a template, then tenants to homeowners, when they make an application, can connect and leverage that framework and the work that the community is doing as a whole for their application. Same thing for, you know, Burt Nash, right? And so that's, that's my hope is that today we develop a framework and then as a community, we can work together to flush that framework out into a more comprehensive plan. And then that the individual entities and partners at the table can use that framework to help with their funding proposals and tie that back into the whole. Thanks, Andy. What questions do folks have for Andy about that, that vision for this time? Don't worry about the how, just what questions do you have specifically for Andy? This is Leah Roseland and um, I, I'm excited about this work and agree we need a comprehensive community plan um, for housing and homelessness. Um, but in the interim, what we do have is the housing uh, plank of the community health plan. And we haven't talked about that yet. And so I'm just wondering how we will utilize that or look at that if, if we'll draw that in at all or if we're interested in creating something completely new. Um, that's a good, good thought. I'm not sure how you all want to handle that. Is there a component um, or of time, or sorry, some time you wanna take now to see what's there mm -hmm. that's being worked on or not? Yeah, well, and what, what I would say is like the, the, the county plans and the city plans, right? Oftentimes those are done in um, some conjunction. And I recognize that sometimes that, that the planning is easier than the funding, right? Um, but I, 
I feel like there's nothing wrong with building on the planning that's already been done by the community. Um, I would just say that I feel like that's something that's a community decision and not a state decision, right? So um, like I, I feel like that is something if you wanna bring it in, Leah, if the city and the county wanna support doing that, we need to see that support coming from the city and the county. supportive of that I, I think that's been I mean that's why I've the county's been engaged in the in the the community health planning process um, and Leah and I work together on the anti-poverty plank of the community health plan um, and we have talked about issues of homelessness as part of the, the housing safe and affordable housing plank uh, of the community health plan as well, but um, there's, I think the, the last meeting we had about it where this issue came up was how this, uh, the issue of homelessness really is, um, it's, it ha it, it, it's trickled, it's in, a, it's in all the other areas of the community health plan as well. Um, and I think that's because the, the, our community health plan was developed based on the social determinants of health. Um, and so um, my interpretation only was that the health plan is trying to think about how this new, how do you take, uh, how to uh, take that, that fifth area, um, the justice area, I think that's what it is. And if this could be, this issue could be developed further in that part of it, or and or we make sure we include it in the next five-year plan or figure out a better space for it to live in the next five-year plan. Um, I'm still thinking about it, and I think the health department's still thinking about it, but I don't think we should not do what you're saying, Leah. I think we should. That, that's always been the, the vision for the community health plan, that it is a roadmap, but this is one area that it kind of just eats everybody's lunch and it's hard to understand where to start. Anybody else have questions for Andy? Andy, I was it's just not, I was just gonna ask um, if on the in the the work that we're gonna do this afternoon, part of that can include who's gonna who's who's gonna kind of be in charge or who's gonna lead you know keep things moving forward. Who are the lead agencies that are can that's the work we've been doing in the community health plan. Um, who's going to facilitate that? Who's going to keep these efforts going and be accountable to this group and this process? I don't want to walk away today and just be like, all right, we did that. Now what? Yeah. Well, and I think, I think that's a good point, Jill. And, um, you know, I had envisioned um, after, after the summits concluded, having another meeting um, with the city and the county to talk about um, sort of next steps. 
Um, I think Mariel's already kind of identified the fact that like we need to have some additional engagement with some of the community members that aren't present today. Um, and I think, um, you know, we can also look at um, sort of what a next, um, sort of what the, what the next steps are and what the ownership of those steps could be, right? Um, and it, with something that's as big as what we're talking about, I think the, the challenge is, is we probably need a, a leadership team. One of the ideas that came up yesterday was really to try to use that um, command structure, right? Incident command structure type um, uh, organization to help facilitate and, and move the project forward. Um, and so that might be something that, you know, we can talk about with the city and the county about um, how that might look and how that work might move forward in that way. There's also obviously a lot of good partners in um, Douglas County that have experience um, pulling groups, provider groups together. And, um, you know, they're uh, Douglas County Community Foundation, United Way, there's a couple other groups like that that have done some work in that regard. Um, you've also got your existing um, homeless, uh, uh, why can I not think of the name of it? The coordinating council, is that the right name? That, uh, that could potentially be a, an, an ownership spot. So I, I think it's important to identify an owner. I don't think we're going to identify the owner today though, I guess is the short answer. Is it possible other than some next steps you just mentioned, Andy, like you meeting with city and county folks, is it possible that um, people on this call could take ownership of some next steps? Yes. Yeah. So, like, like if people want to take a piece and flush it out more or yeah. do some research on something and bring it back to the group later, like I think those are all viable things people could take ownership over. I just want to add that if the, um, I actually, the comparison to the incident command structure, um, Kind of raises my neck hairs a little bit um, because I don't feel like that was an equitable process and didn't have equitable membership. So I would only go really agree to going that route if multiple people who have current or past lived experience of homelessness, actually current and past lived experience of homelessness were included in that structure. Um, I think that's really, really important. I would second that. It concerned me more because then that makes me, that leads me to believe that the county and the city are in charge and it, that it's, it's our job to figure all this out. And, and I, I personally don't think it is. I think we play a role in it, but I think this issue is a symptom of a community issue. There, it needs lots of stakeholders. It can't just be the city and the county left to solve all these problems, or honestly, we're just gonna keep doing what we've been doing and try to do it the best way we can, which is why we got together to do this event today. Mm -hmm. Yep. I think that's, right. a, that's a good point, Jill. And, I, I, um, and that's not to like denigrate that process like, too much. I think it, it, it was what it was, but I, I think we can improve on that and we can do a lot better in this space when we're addressing um, homelessness. And I, um, 
And um, I also think we have really great partners statewide, like Andy and like Dawn and Shanae, who also can provide some transformative kind of um, input and, and is, makes solutions possible and things like that. Yeah. Uh, I, think I would say just that looking at, you know, reality and how things get done, there needs to be leadership. If there's not any leadership, nothing will get done. So someone's, I mean, there's got to be a group who picks up the ball and is responsible for pushing things forward as a core group. Otherwise, if we just say, well, everybody's responsible, then no one will take responsibility and nothing will get done. So that there's got to be somebody who's leading the way. Why don't we not just have the conversation of who's here right now and who's willing to be, because it seems like it needs to be not just like one already established group, but a um, maybe something from this particular summit and then calling in the folks that are not in this space right now and kind of creating like a, I call it action group and community organizing um, that is comprised of, you know, service providers, uh, community stakeholders, grassroots organizations, the community members affected and, uh, you know, adjacent to that effectiveness and come together to help kind of work on that strategy, work on that plan. Um, I know to me that just kind of sounds like a way forward is because the biggest conversation or discussion issue that has been brought up is that there's so many people, right? There's so many organizations that are involved, community members that are involved in addressing homelessness and we have been so separated um, or have had little contact. I think now is the time and the perfect opportunity to call everybody in and be like, we need, you know, one, two representatives from your group. We need to be in here and these need to be monthly, you know, bi-monthly planning sessions of how we move this forward because our budgeting for the city and the county is coming up and if we want to shake a leg on this and take an opportunity for the funding that's available to the state and the federal government. And I, I feel like that's the most cohesive way to do it is to kind of feel like, well, who do we have? Who needs to be brought in? And how do we do that in a way that communication is very solid? And, you know, those who make the commitments are staying within that commitment and have a group that's being that accountability group. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, I think this is an interesting issue to kind of raise the heat on, right? Because um, I think we can all recognize that, like, in Lawrence, there's traditionally been a lot of sort of finger pointing around homelessness and, and trying to address homelessness as a problem. And, um, you know, a lot of um, people looking at it as, you know, who's, you know, like, I, I think there's always comments about you know, like, it doesn't matter if you do anything about homelessness, because there's just always going to be more homelessness, right? And, and I think that there's, you know, the folks that are in the room today have all come here because they want to advance progress on the problem, right, or on the issue of homelessness, right? And I feel strongly that there's enough willpower and momentum currently an opportunity for funding that we can make real progress if we're able to come together um, and come up with a joint vision for what it is that we believe we can work towards. 
I think a lot of that work is going to be happening at, I don't want to say individual levels, but in, in smaller capacities than what we're currently gathered in, right? And so that's why I think it's important that um, there's the shared vision and framework and also the opportunity for there to be um, leadership and, and dialogue about ongoing progress and sustainability, right? And I think the county and the city have already really stepped up to the plate around Built for Zero and have been working towards those goals and using that vision. Um, and I feel like there's um, a lot of support and leadership available from KDADS around housing first. Um, and I think that there's leadership that we can get through Kansas Housing Resource Center around ESG and other programs. But I think, I think that there is a need for um, some, some type of leadership issue. And I think we talked about it yesterday in terms of it being taking the lessons we learned from the incident command structure and applying those to this. So I don't know that it necessarily has to be interpreted as because it's an, an incident command structure that that means the city or the county is, is solely responsible for it. Um, but I do think that the value of that structure and the lessons that people learned from it was is that it did bring people together it did make people look at different resources and make sure that they were being communicated to other parts of the incident command, right? And that it wasn't just happening in a vacuum. And I think that's always the concern that I have is, is that Renee may be doing amazing stuff, right? But not all of that gets communicated out. Not everybody knows about it. And, you know, and then Renee's over here struggling to figure out how to fund something because what she's doing maybe didn't fit into the comprehensive vision, right? Or that comprehensive vision didn't exist. And so I think those are kind of the challenges. And what I've seen a lot in Lawrence is just the idea of like, well, we've got, you know, $100,000. We're going to put it up there. We're going to let everybody turn in um, applications for that $100,000. And we're going to get like two or three projects out of it, right? That are limited term, limited scope, right? And don't have the collective impact that we could potentially have with the funding that we've got available now, right? And so I think it's just, it's a little bit of a mind shift, right? Like we need to talk about how, how buy-in to a shared vision helps create that uh, um, uniformity, right, amongst the activities that we're trying to fund. And it makes things easier for the city and the county and, uh, you know, KDADS and other funders when they look, can look at something and say, okay, there's a shared vision here and this piece of the pie is going towards that impact. And I think that's a lesson that you know, we have learned, but we haven't really been able to apply universally to the issue of homelessness, right? 
So. Well, Andy, if I could just add something that this, uh, through the course of these two days, I keep thinking back to a conversation that Matthew and Jill and Dana and Rebecca and Renee and a couple others uh, of, uh, of us had at the library about 18 months ago after the community conversation on homelessness. And we identified that there was this need for a comprehensive community plan. And we identified that there was a need for a new coalition and for us to continue meeting and working together and really doing collective impact on this issue. And the, the reason that hasn't happened is really um, because of organizational capacity. And mm -hmm. so going back to Jill's point, I do think that it's been important, not that it has to be decided now, but I think, you know, our community has realized and been ready for this um, type of collective community impact um, work on this, but there's a capacity issue from an organizational uh, structure. So that that's something that we sort of need to um, have a really honest uh, conversation about as we discuss leadership. Yeah. And to that point, one thing we haven't had a chance to talk about in, in this conversation is the, the work, what the evolution in, in my understanding, at least in a recognition of the, how under-resourced certain organizations have been and, and I'm thinking of Burt Nash because what we've learned through the Built for Zero process the last year is if is just how under-resourced that agency is to lead, lead the charge, so to speak, as they presume to have been historically through the homeless outreach team um, to the extent that they're not able to truly do outreach that they're doing coordinated entry. David's doing coordinated entry, um, but he's doing that in a bajillion other things too. So if we want to have a high functioning system, we need, or just a functioning system, we need to invest in it. And these systems matter. That's what we've learned through Built for Zero has helped us pause and realize what are the systems we need? What do we, and then how do we invest in them? And Bird Nash has put together a pretty compelling um, proposal to, to give them the resources they need to do that. Um, and that builds upon investments that the COC, Shanae and Dawn have been making um, that are layering onto that. But those are just foundational aspects of it. More needs to be done. Um, and I mean, the same can be true for Renee's organization as well. Um, the improvements that were made at that organization over the last two years, the, from a capacity standpoint and a building, just a facility standpoint, um, have positioned them better to be, to best, better serve human beings in the, in the first place, but also just shift the way folks in the community think about what that organization does and how they do it. Um, I think Renee has really done some transformative work there that hasn't been easy as well. Mm -hmm. I just, thank you, Jill. Thank you, Jill. Um, and one, one of the things that we do want to work on next is, is including the voices of people who are experiencing homelessness or living in the shelter. And it's been a priority since I, I started. And then, of course, COVID is really, truly the thing that has completely um, made some of those administrative 
best practices um, really difficult to implement. But as we're coming out of that and people are getting vaccinated, you know, it's it's clearer part of our focus. And um, I just want to make sure, like, I totally hear people and agree that like collective impact, shared vision, and having leadership structures are crucial for actually getting things done. Please understand that people experiencing homelessness can be leaders. They can be a part of a leadership structure. And you cannot say that you have a shared vision or you're reaching for collective impact without those folks in leadership. So um, I just, that's where I'm going with this. I, I absolutely want us to move expeditiously and, um, and, and be effective. And I think that having folks with lived experience um, in leadership places works for that. And we totally can pay them, especially if we are talking about millions of dollars. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Could I make a, a comment real quick? I've got to go to another meeting and I'm very interested in this, this part of the conversation. Two things that I've observed. One is this seems like the first time that everybody is really talking. And I think it's your prompt, Andy, but to say, take the lid off of these paradigms we've suffered under that we just cobble together the best we can with whatever resources we can find with big hearted people and agencies that are trying to do it their, their own way. Um, and, and now we're taking, we're taking the lid off and saying, oh my goodness, what do we really need to be successful in this space? And, and I think that's very empowering. And I think it's, it's, it will change strategy because we think big, we don't think incremental, small year to year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, and I think that's strategic. And that's the other point I'd make on incident command is good at saying, we agree these are the objectives and then having absolute accountability for execution. Strategy and execution are completely different things. Both are vitally important and interactive. The strategy needs to be built as comprehensively with all the different perspectives as we possibly can get, so it's really, really effective. The execution then needs to really have accountability and resources known. I need to come back to the table at the next meeting and say, I have done what I said I was going to do and tell me what's next. And I know what my role is. Now that, that part of it doesn't exclude anybody, but it does make sure that nothing is forgotten, missed or under-resourced. And then if it is, we do that together and we may have to re-examine strategies together. So that is, that is the part that I don't think has been distinguished and gets mixed together, at least in the people that approach the city for resources, they completely mis- mix those together. And I don't think one should be exclusive at all. It needs to be as inclusive as possible. But the execution thing, the reality is, we in government have budgets that we have to allocate and we have political accountability for. And that isn't something we get to turn on. It's just the reality of the structures that were built. And until we build some other structure, that's what we've got to live by. And I think having a plan that has those pieces and says, this is what excellence looks like, this is what it takes to get there, and this is what it's going to cost, are very powerful, very powerful and necessary. Sorry for my little rant, but that was me yeah, talking. Th- thank you, Craig. So one thing I am hearing is an agreement that you need some sort of uh, either 
if not now, eventually a leadership team that's moving this forward. But minimally, I think I'm hearing that there needs to be um, a person or two or three, maybe it's a multi-sector uh, or multi-organizational team that says we're willing, at least for now, to be a team that's going to reconvene folks and keep this moving. Yeah, is I think that's the, the thing that, the, I don't know. I heard Mar Mariel and then. Oh, it's, um, it's okay. S O U R I, I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say that I think the, in, in support of that, Joyce, what you're saying is that that team that is established, and I think I said it before, needs to be made of multiple <laughs> agencies and groups and, and individuals that will say yes and make that commitment and then bring more people in. Just to make sure, because I think just as we had discussed, and it is a very touchy subject because this is so near and dear to so many people and people have been working on this for so long, but it just cannot be held by one organization. I think we're all really past that. I hope so anyway. So I, I hope with moving forward, it's with that ideology that maybe we can start naming today who those, those key players are and who's willing to step up, but making sure that that's still... A, a forming process and is not set in stone um, right. until we reach out to everyone we possibly can. Right. That's what I'd say. Well, and yeah, the thing that I was going to say is, you know, one of the things that we need to keep the lens constantly on is the sustainability, because I have been doing this work for a very long time. And what happens with new money is people go out and do really creative things and then some something happens to some of that money. And then now you've created something that you can't sustain. And now you're in these different funding pools fighting with your part, you know, basically trying to edge out your partners to try to keep your program going when really we're all working on the same program, maybe different little pieces of it. And so, I mean, we need to be really realistic about what can we get on the ground and what, what is our plan to sustain that after the CARES Act or whatever the new acronym is, um, you know, goes away? Because the worst thing that, you know, we see is things get created and then now we're making the problem worse because we've housed people, but then we can't fund it. And then they can't stay there or we can't support it or the case manager just got defunded. And so I don't, I would prefer to create a smaller thing that we can support rather than a huge thing that a year from now is gone. And now we've imperiled the people we were trying to help the whole time because we don't have the funding to come back and, and continue to help. Yeah. Well, and I think that's one of the things, Shannon, that I, I feel like it that we are trying to work on at the state level, right, is that we're trying to work on identifying um, ways that we can build sustainability into our Medicaid system for addressing housing first. And we're looking at ways that we can try to build sustainability for mobile crisis into our Medicaid system. Um, and, you know, and, and I'm, I spent a lot of time in front of the legislature trying to convince the legislature to fund more mental health stuff. So, I, we make progress on that. Um, and I feel like 
um, as we have more of those components that are available for, for billing and those kinds of things, we'll see more sustainability. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, Matthew and I have talked about is the idea that, you know, you don't necessarily have to build everything in year one, right? Like you can start and say, okay, we're going to take this chunk on and we're going to work on this. And then that might be something that as those services become billable and, you know, you heard Sam talk about it earlier today that, you know, if you're going to build an ACT team for housing first, fund that thing for one or two years with no billing, whatever billing you get, that's great. Keep that money for the future. Right. And then once you get to the point where there's a big enough caseload that they can maintain those services through the actual billing cycle um, on Medicaid, it becomes sustainable. And I think the trick is just not to, to you know, the trick is to right size, right? Like to make sure that we're not building a system that's going to collapse because it doesn't have enough infrastructure under it, right? Okay, two, two places it sounds like we can go. One is to still flesh out who's willing to move this forward. Um, and that can grow over time, but just knowing after today, where does this go? And then secondly, to get very clear on the components of this framework that you believe you need to have in place, maybe what's already in place and where you still need to think about of um, innovative partnerships or solutions, et cetera. Just really quickly, I saw Abigail had her hand up. I'm sorry, I can't see everybody. Nope, that's okay. <laughs> Okay, this is Abigail with Catholic Charities. The only thing I was just going to say in support of what Shannon had pointed out is that Lawrence or Douglas count at large, we miss um, funding that's long-term. Like we used to have the COC funds that uh, through Salvation Army that we were able to house people who needed that support for a longer term other than the vouchers, yes, but they're not available for most of the people who are experiencing homelessness in, in Douglas County. So whatever we are planning, just like Shannon was saying, something that's sustainable and uh, we're looking at the need of having some funding that's on a long-term basis, just because most of the people we serve they won't be able to sustain housing on their own, or these are people who are not able to work. And even when we talk about applying for SSI, it takes forever for them to get the SSI, or some of them, despite the barriers they have, they still get denied. So if we can have that kind of funding that's sustainable, that's able to support those individuals, the few 20% um, people for on a longer term basis without fear of losing funding in the future. Because what we have right now is just short term funding that you have to reapply and reapply every year. And it can only sustain people for three months or six months. And then you think they are ready to take care of themselves and then eventually they get evicted. So if Douglas County can get something like that, be it being run by one agent, just like it was done through Salvation Army, we know who to refer those people we, we meet with, we have those barriers. So that was just my little piece. Thanks, Abigail. 
So what would you like to do with this leadership piece? Well, Abigail made me think of this, um, you know, the, she mentioned the COC, the continuum of care. And in, in other communities, that is a leadership. It's a leadership organization. It, it can, or it can be. Um, and the, the agency that hosts the COC, so to speak, is um, the Kansas Statewide Homelessness Coalition, which is the agency that Don and Shanae work for. Um, and, and so there's the COC and then there's that the not-for-profit, um, but that not-for-profit, the Kansas Statewide Homelessness Coalition, um, if I take off my county hat and I put on my, I'm the treasurer of the Kansas Statewide Homelessness Coalition, um, as a board member, it's a priority to elevate the profile of that, organ that or organization to truly be a leader and advancing, you know, representing the needs of folks that are experiencing homelessness in um, it's, it's the balance of state. So it's not just Lawrence Douglas County, but I think we could help facilitate what a lo local leadership structure could look like um, using the wisdom of this group. I, so I take my board member hat off and I don't know what Shanae and Dawn think of that um, and how you can separate those two hats, but those are organizations that could provide that third neutral third space um, and incorporate folks with lived experience, the agencies, um, the providers, all that. I don't know, that's food for thought for folks. Jill, you absolutely nailed it. And I think most of most of the agencies that are present here today have seen significant changes in what the continuum of care looks like and what KSHC looks like. But I will tell you, one of our greatest goals is to redefine what a continuum of care is, not the word or the verbiage or the explanation, but what we think when we say COC. Because I think what had happened in infancy is the COC became the funded COC agencies and not the effort, right? And a true continuum of care means everyone that's at this table today, we all are living the same mission. We are all guiding the same mission. We come to the table with equal effort, equal commitment, and we take off our hats as competitors for funding. And we say, not what's best for us, not what's best for the agency, what is best for those we serve. And I say this all the times to my staff, I don't work for the board, sorry, Jill. I don't work for the, you know, the COC. I work for those that we serve. And if we all learn to adopt, not the, and I think everyone here has that mentality, but if we collectively adopt that we, as a continuum of care, work together, then we can guide that leadership. And I will tell you that the COC, um, and I can speak for myself and my staff, our app and our board as well, we have a wonderful board that is really giving us some great guidance and, um, giving us the lead way and leadership that we need to make us a presence at the table. Uh, I don't know that we've accomplished that historically, but we do want to be at the table. We do want to sit in and help facilitate and be present and be a part of it. We are already soliciting some MOUs and working on relationships that wouldn't even have been thought of three years ago. We're talking to some MCOs. We're talking to about foster youth initiative, you know, youth exiting foster care. 
we're really getting our feet wet in a lot of places, which is really scary and really fun and really hopeful all at once. But what I would like to assure you is Jill's absolutely right. We want a place at this table. What that looks like, we will take from you. Um, so what you could decide, what your structure or your leadership or guidance it will be, we will be there. Um, even though we do have a capacity in 101 counties, I am actually sitting on two things. One, thanks to Jill, um, uh, it's a, an indigenous person that I met, met up with some balance of states who were actually actively engaged in Built for Zero, which is kind of an anomaly concept because you know usually it's one community. Um, I'm also sitting on a head-driven um, community impact or community engagement where it is, uh, the topic is inviting those with lived experience to the table taking their guidance and, and making sure that our services match what the needs are. So I will assure you all of myself and all of our staff are here to be a part, not just a part, but an active part of whatever this looks like. So what we would ask is that you tell us how we can help, where we can help and when to be there and we'll be there. So thanks Jill for giving us the, the minute to give a little shout out for where we're going. We're not there yet you guys, but we're sure going there quickly. Abigail, I saw your hand. Sure, I was just going to talk a little bit about the COC. I had the opportunity to work in both Johnson County and Douglas County. I think with jo Douglas County, we have the infrastructure, we have the resources for our COC to, to take the leadership at this point. Um, what I see missing in Douglas County is that that coordination, that real coordination, that this is the list of people we have in Douglas County who are experiencing homelessness. Who is what resources that suits this population to take over the people? I think we are missing on that in Douglas County. I'll give an example of Johnson County. They had that COC program, right, the leadership. They have an entire list of the people who are experiencing homelessness. And they all organization, they meet together, they go through the list, uh, who has an opening for this kind of person with this vulnerability. Is it British that can take someone who has a score of 18 in vulnerability? Do you have an opening for this person? And then they take that person and work with them, still in coordination with other agencies. When you meet, you discuss what's happening to these individuals. Where are you with this individual in terms of housing them? So I think we are missing that piece in Douglas County, really sitting down and coordinating and saying, okay, these people are going to, to Britain, these people are going to Family Promise because they have the resource to support this person depending on their vulnerability. And then it comes back to what I was talking about, that Douglas County, we make that funding that's more on a long-term basis because we have people who have those 18 um, score in vulnerability on Vespedite, we have nowhere to refer them. There's no organization that's prepared to support those people. So I think we already have the infrastructure in terms of leadership uh, with COC right now being led by Brett Nash. I think we can build onto that and just um, figure out how we are going to make the referrals of all those people we have on the list. Well, I'm gonna step in here. You know. We were gathered here today to create a framework and a plan for all of us, and which means get, creating consensus that we can use in utilizing a huge amount of resource that's about to come into our community in the best possible way. And I want to, I think it's important that we kind of come back to this as our focus. Um, 
there's definitely some issues that we need to address regarding leadership, and perhaps that is the very next step. We've done a lot in so far as compiling information. We've done a lot of breakouts, and we've, we've got a several documents that we've created from that. It seems to me that we need to convene in a manner that starts to compile that information, which is, I think, partially what the last step in our agenda of today was. And it seems like we need to combine these two next steps. So the, the one o'clock and the 245 parts of our agenda, which we're creating a framework and sustainability and then putting everything, everything together next steps. I feel like we're there. Um, I want to also be mindful that you know, most things that happen in the world when there's great movements and there's a lot of accomplishment, it's because there's very passionate people who pick those up and run with it. And that's, I think we have that group here. Um, I want us to be mindful that we're not afraid of leadership. We're not both afraid to be leaders and we're not afraid of leaders, but that we have clear lines of communication and feedback and that we're able to listen and take that feedback and, and use it to move forward with this project. Um, so we have all this information that we've compiled. How does everybody feel about breaking out to look at that and or creating a way to look at that and start putting it together in a meaningful document or in a meaningful process? So um, this is Andy and I, I would say that um, I'm, you know, I'm willing to make a commitment to um, come back and meet with um, the city and the county and, uh, you know, uh, pull together um, some of the providers, right, to talk about what this leadership component might look like, right? Um, and um, and and talk some about next steps, right? At that point, um, and then re like look at reconvening this group in a few weeks, right? Just to kind of have us revisit. Um, sort of that leadership discussion, right? Um, as a as a whole body, right? Uh, and that'll give us maybe an opportunity to talk also about um, additional engagement that we need to do and how we can can work on that. Um, and then I think what maybe I would say is like if if we wanted to take a break now. And then when we come back from the break, we kind of look again at, you know, what Matt's talking about, which is trying to go ahead and pull some information together and, and put that into um, an outline form or something that we can take away as a, a product for today. Does that sound good? It's good on our end. I think we've done a lot of due diligence, right? And like leading mm -hmm. up to this, I mean, there were some conversations a couple of weeks ago about kind of taking on that next step. And I, I feel like we've done 
a lot of work that we've needed to do it over the last couple weeks that was really important before going there. So I just want to thank Andy for convening this part of that process and especially last night's community meeting because those were so crucial um, before moving on to designating like a leadership structure or whatever. So thank you so much, Andy, for um, for pulling this group together and leveraging your passion for Lawrence as well as like your connections to make it happen. So we had a break set up for this afternoon for half an hour. Do you all want half an hour now or 15 minutes now? What do you need? What if we just just did five minutes? Or five. <laughs> I suggest 15. 15 right now. I'd like for some of you, if you haven't pulled those documents back up to look at what data you do have now, to please do that. So I'm going to say let's take 15. Please look, use some of that time to look at some of those documents. We'll see you back here at 215. Right. Thank you. Everyone, we will get started again here in just another minute. Let folks get back to their desks and settled in. Thanks for turning your cameras on. That's helpful for us to see that you're here. So we had talked about trying to move to the framework. Um, now that we have some guarantee that you're going to get back together again, and someone's going to take this forward, at least initially. So let's move to the framework. Um, so I'm gonna pose the question in this way and let's see um, where you go with that. So my question to you is, if your goal is functional zero, what are the needs and how would you define them as it relates to that goal? I want you to be pithy in your responses, please. You don't have to, to give us a long explanation about it. Let's just list them first. Whoever would like to start. We need affordable rental units, whether that be through creating more or making the units that we do have more accessible. I'm typing these, by the way, as soon as I get a, a little bit of space, I'll share my screen. And you said, Gabby, uh, make the units you have accessible or affordable. Was that a question? I'm sorry. That was it was. The last word you used was accessible or affordable? Accessible, yeah. Who else? This is Matthew. Thanks. Comprehensive supportive services and comprehensive housing. And this is Sandra. I'm, I might uh, build on that, Matthew, kind of clarifying comprehensive services are those like social determinants of health, behavioral health services, primary care services that help people sustain housing and recovery. Sandra, try that again for me, please. Ooh, I don't know if I can. Okay. Um, <laughs> Started with, with um, social determinants of health, but then you said uh, the um, 
so things like behavioral health services, so mental health and substance use services, primary care, those things that help individuals sustain recovery in housing. Thank you, Sandra. I was just being pithy. But I'm never pithy, Matthew. You know that. Who else? Clear ownership. Uh, sorry, this is Brandon. Uh, clear ownership of of programs and solutions. We'll get into those potential program elements here in a little bit, but so we need ownership of those. What else? Housing that is accessible from, from the street that supports recovery at any stage. You said from the street? From the street. That support so, supports recovery at any stage. Okay. Uh, community funding, private, private community funding from citizens and businesses, maybe non-governmental funding. Or more of that, obviously, we, government funding will always be there, but it can't just be the only thing. Functional zero, that includes all experiencing homelessness, including those that don't qualify by the HUD definition. Do I sound like a broken record? <laughs> are, you, are you naming what functional zero means? Or are you saying that this is a need? No, that a lot of people that are experiencing homelessness are doubled up, and so they don't qualify for a lot of these programs, including families. So all experiencing homelessness are, are part of, are recognized as needing these services. And I think it's a broken record that needs to keep being heard over and over again. So <laughs> I don't you, think Doug. we're gonna find anybody here who disagrees. So then I think we need um, shared data processes, processes for sharing data and clear- And collaborating. Right, collaborating yeah. on data clear definitions, clear shared definitions, and clear diagnostic tools, shared diagnostic tools. Are those all for separate, that. Renee? Um, I don't know. Shared, yeah. You said definitions and diagnostic tools, those are separate mm -hmm. from the data? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and clear definition. I'm trying to be a broken record also sustainable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A one-stop shop social service center. Another broken record. Yeah. <laughs> when you guys are listing these, are you listing them because of what you've been hearing the last, you know, yesterday or today that you feel like there's some agreement around them? I'm just curious. I honestly think most of us have been working in this for a while and it's been things we've been struggling with to try to meet the need in not a 
coordinated, well-funded system. Yeah, and I'm kind of wondering if we're like, are we like re-tracking the same path here with this list or do we want to move beyond some of this stuff or is this stuff that we truly don't, we have to uh, articulate or define first or establish first before we move on? Because really, if we want to, you know, just like when we work on our mission statements as organizations, sometimes we get drawn into like a paragraph long mission statement and then, then we realize we really need to articulate it in one sentence. Oh. And so um, if we, if, if we had, you know, if our goal is functional zero, what are our needs? Like, how do we articulate that in one or two sentences? And I think that's something we need to work on. I mean, if we don't, if we're not at a place where we can say it's 300 people and they need this, then we're not there yet. And we still have to work on this stuff. But, but are we, are we able to just name that the scale of the problem? Well, Renee, let me ask you a question in that I worry about saying it's 300 people and we need this many units or we need this many things because that's kind of today's problem. But what we know is tomorrow's problem will be bigger. That's what I was going to say. I think I think we it's a both and right. We we can say today we know we need 300 units, but tomorrow. What do we need? And so we have to do both. So what are you wanting from today's conversation then as it relates to what you're describing? Can I tag off of something that Renee just said? Because I think it's really critical and very good reminder. And I'm going to go back to what some of the things that Sam mentioned, this Dr. Sam mentioned this morning. And those were those three components of a community plan. Uh, subsidy rent, so a, a vouchery kind of program. Um, property management component that, that includes the landlords, and then this cross-functional team approach that includes housing specialists and peer advocates. And, and I think that just seems like a good recipe that gets us all out of our own box, right? And it brings a little heat because we have to let go of things that we've always done before from all aspects of it. It puts us in a position of listening and learning and addressing the issues before us. And part of that, I think, as Renee said, involves um, shared teams, data, uh, diagnostic tools, paths, things like that, that we all can agree on. And maybe we distill that down pretty small, which is probably helpful at this point. So I only captured some key words on that, Dana, on the, um, what's the voucher, voucher, vouchers, that's the, yeah. is, a, is the voucher thing. And then Shannon's going to say the sustainability of all of that too. So I think that's appropriate. Yeah. And the, <clears throat> for the section where you have landlord, I would uh, put like hyphen property management. Property yeah. management activities. Housing, housing specialists. Under landlord property? Yeah, because it would be, it's a kind of a different skill set than direct services. So your proposal, Dana, is that this becomes sort of that framework and all the other things you were talking about it, fall underneath it? It's certainly not my 
Whoops, sorry. It's certainly not my proposal. I, I heard, I that's what I took away, one of the key components from this morning's presentation. Yeah, I, I think you're making a great point. This is a great framework. I would I would modify it a little bit or add to it that this is the framework for the 80%. Right. And then we need another framework for the 20% who don't fit in the housing first model. Um, so we need to add modify this for the 20%. On the sustainability, again, and I kind of, I guess I gravitate towards the boots on the ground stuff. Uh, one thing we don't have and would be really great is to start an endowment. And we've talked, many of us have talked about it over, over the years, uh, a social service endowment that is local, that is gonna be permanent and doesn't have any sunsetting associated with it. Unless, you know, the economy totally drastically changes and those types of things don't exist anymore. But. And that's more for the 20%, Matthew, you're talking about? That's just for sustainability across the board. Got it. We're looking at communities that disproportionately experience homelessness that we haven't talked about. We need queer community services, uh, particularly for queer youth who are displaced or kicked out of their homes um, when they come out. Um, and more supportive services for single moms and multi-generational family support. Are you wanting that as, uh, up here on the framework list? Leah? When you're, when you're talking I'm about- I'm sorry, I was, I was talking about it as, an, as a need, but wherever you think it <laughs> Yeah, well, when you were talking about one-stop shop social service center, are those the types of services that would be accessible at that kind of a center? Maybe, but we don't have those services in our community. So I wouldn't assume that just by creating a center that like queer community services would be a natural part of that. We haven't even really talked about that as a community. Okay. Um, in these types of the chat? Leah, can you use the chat and put in what you listed? Well, actually, that's a, I think a couple of these items I'm not sure that we have consensus on. So I don't know. I mean, I want for Leah's exact reason of what she's, I don't want to start a debate about this. I'm just saying for Leah's exact reason for what she's articulating, I am not enamored with the idea of one stop shop for everything. I think that there is no one stop shop for anything in our community or larger society that is equitable. And so I, so I just don't, I, I, for that reason, I think that, um, and again, like, I think we should be kind of brief with what we're, if we're answer, in answering this question. Okay, I don't wanna lose what Leah said. I just couldn't type it because I was trying to figure out where that was supposed to go. So if it's available in a chat, I'll cut and paste it. Uh, to just to clarify real quick, Renee, the uh, the one stop shop was a proposed uh, place where all agencies could be located, like a satellite office, so that people could access everything from one location that's centrally located downtown or something like that. Um, that doesn't mean those other agencies 
don't have their own function and such. It just was to make things more convenient for people. I'm going to move on here. Another category with the baby boomers and as things aging, and this is a challenge in Douglas County is um, like assisted living in home supports for folks who don't, you know, fit in the SPMI category, SUD Medicaid category. And even for folks who do fit in the Medicaid category, there's no assisted living in Douglas County that's accessible that will take Medicaid in the front door for the aging and elderly population. Anything else? Yeah, put her um, thoughts in the chat. Thank you. Yeah, it is not easy to see that chat with three other things open on my screen, so thank you. So I'm, I'm curious about if this list is helping you think about framework or if it's doing something else for you right now. Is this helping clarify what you need? But I, I, and again, I know we're going to talk about this. It, who's, who's leading what and how? I think that's this is a lot of things, and I think that there are pieces pieces of this folks are doing. Um, but who's going to unify it and make sure it stays um, consistent with this? The framework stays consistent with what we how we lead things today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Jill, I think um, like we could, I think we'll revisit sort of the ownership slash leadership discussion later. But um, I think what I'm curious about is um, if we move from, from these are the things that we need to what are the program elements that are going to be needed in order to meet those needs, um, and and talk about that. That might help kind of shift to a more um, to a little bit more framing around planning um, about what what we feel like we're going to be making requests for for funding, and and that might help us steer towards what items maybe need ownership. So there's your question. What proposed program elements do we need to have in place to meet the needs that you listed above? And I just wanted to say, Sally put in the chat that um, think of the one-stop shop in terms of having services close to each other, a campus of sorts to limit the need to travel across town. She said that's why they worked so hard to move healthcare access clinic to Main Street from Model Ro Motty Road. Mm 
Um, that way the patients could go across to LMH for labs, other tests, um, go down to Burt Nash to make an appointment, access the dental clinic, all of that. So it's kind of a campus, not everybody in one room. And then Leah said, and now we come to consensus or other types of agreements that these are needs and priorities, and how, not and now, and how we come to consensus or other types of agreements that these are needs and priorities. To be determined. Yes. Thanks. Thanks for monitoring the chat. Proposed program elements that you need. Well, it seems like we need increased subsidy, which I'm always talking about. Any of it, this housing, any solution to this problem requires affordable housing and more supportive services require more subsidy. So um, how do we increase the volume of subsidy, which would increase the volume of affordable units? which would increase our ability to provide supportive services to scattered site units. And I don't think that means whole new programs. I think we have a lot of that here that we can build on, but that we need to increase that capacity because as we've said, housing is just getting more and more expensive. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, as housing appreciates, that subsidy requires more. So we do have a unique opportunity to invest in purchasing and bricks and mortar and ownership of real estate where we can control the appreciated cost in the future as well. I think there's a real, we don't usually have that ability with less funding, but we, we will have that ability with this kind of funding. Is that what you're saying, Rebecca? Yep. And Shannon, I don't want to put you on the spot, but Matthew was talking about um, the social services endowment. And I know that with that landlord liaison position, there comes some um, sort of safety net funds for landlords who have a little bit hesitancy um, um, with with taking a uh, taking on a person who has a Section Eight voucher, allowing them to live in their space, um, I think that's a good project. I wonder about sustainability. Um, so I guess program elements would be looking at that more and seeing how we can sustain that. Yeah, I would agree. We, I mean, we're going to get it started, but what we won't be able to do because we have a limited time to spend the funds or we have to give them back is we will not be able to create a perpetual sort of damages landlord support fund. So if, I mean, that is a good thing is we already have the infrastructure now created, although we still have to hire the position, but, but if, if we just had funds to create that, pot of money to encourage more landlords, that'd be great. I also want to echo what Rebecca said, which is um, we're going to, like Matthew keeps saying, we have an 80% problem and a 20% problem. I mean, I think one of the elements in the 20% problem is, is we need to own, the, there are some people we need to serve 
who a private landlord will never be able to handle the issues that come with that group. And so we need those units. And then it's a partnership between, you know, some of us, Rebecca and, and Willow or me or us and Bert Nash or whatever, then it's these partnerships. Uh, DECA is in that too, which is, um, you know, to run those things. And, I, you know, I kind of think, I, I believe we can come up with a model if we get the, the property that is sustainable. I feel confident we can because I'm working on it now. So that's, that's the kind of property that Matthew was referring to is, you know, like da damage proofed or, um, you know, uh, more, more durable uh, property. Um, yeah. As we're talking about program elements and as you guys are talking, it brings to mind, um, I think there needs to be a, a conscious element of this that is about the public portion and a conscious element that is about the private portion. Yeah. And, I, and, and then I'm specifically thinking about landlords and housing. So there's a, a portion of it that is about the public housing that we might have and develop and a portion of it that is really focused on private landlords uh, and, and that we have, for example, a team like Gabby or um, a modification of that whose job is to really just talk to private landlords and uh, as an extension of uh, housing authority or whatever they're doing in that field to garner those relationships, to make those partnerships um, and to build partners in the private sector. And that's something that's separate than, you know, running the stuff that's in the public sector. Um, but they have to be their necessary components and elements of this. Or vouchers or voucher-like programs like the transitional voucher that Shannon's team runs and has for years. And that has great success. But vouchers that will roll over to a Section 8 voucher, vouchers that give people a, a shot, it's scattered site, so we're not... Um, we just need more of those. I don't know how that becomes sustainable, Shannon, but, and then we need more landlords that are that education piece, Matthew, that you were just speaking of landlords to accept those vouchers once the voucher is in hand. And moving, uh, more upstream, we need systems advocacy, um, particularly at the state level, because a lot of our ideas are um, are diminished <laughs> or censored at the state level, and it's something we don't necessarily have the capacity for right now. So zoning, um, uh, anti-discrimination ordinances, those kinds of things. Um, Shannon, just uh, I'm I'm just curious. Like from my memory, it was about two years to get a Section Eight voucher after you completed your application. Is that still yeah. kind of the case? It, if you're on the 
main list, if you're on the general housing list, it's faster if you're on one of these other special vouchers that also require case management. Those are generally faster, but but what's terrible about them is they're cyclical. We'll get all the funding, we'll house a bunch of people, and then we'll go six months where we're waiting for the next round of funding. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you come on during the, the time where we've already allocated all the funds, then you're just waiting and hoping you're gonna be high enough on the list when the next round comes um, to, to get housed, so. Any other proposed program elements? Well, and can I say something about the system advocacy? Because it it concerns me a little bit, not because I don't agree with all of it, but because, you know, when the Affordable Housing Advisory Board first got started, we were having a discussion about inclusive zoning. And in a response to us just talking about it, we got the statute that now is sort of causing a lot of us some problems. And so, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things is, you know, we're a bit of the, you know, redheaded stepchild in the state of Kansas. And sometimes we need, I think, to be careful to, to first do no harm um, in our efforts to try to do good. Um, because, you know, <laughs> like I said, unfortunately, the, I, and I, and I want to say it was like the real estate association went to the legislature and, you know, basically asked for that ban on inclusive zoning. That is wild, um, and that that political reality. Um, that story is just wild. Uh, I think that that like political reality is important, but I also think that one thing that's kind of missing from our conversation across the last two days is us uh, really um, positing homelessness as an injustice and an ad- an adaptive problem. It's it's not actually a problem of a resource scarcity. Like I know we're about to get all this money, but we've always, especially in Lawrence, has always had the resources to solve homelessness. Um, it's 280 people. It's it's never been beyond the reach of this community, and um, resources help, money helps, but also in an adaptive way, transforming how we um, uh, see those community members and um, eliminating some of the uh, barriers that are in front of them that are discriminatory or um, ableist are are, and making those important policy changes are just as crucial as directing, you know, resources to social services providers. And so I, I, I understand that. And like over time, I'm more like kind of having to live with the um, state politics are really infuriating, but I think we, we have to talk about homelessness as a, as a justice issue. 
Well, and, and I agree. One of the things that I saw in, um, I heard in Sam's presentation this morning that really um, is still sitting with me that I, um, and I wrote it down was in one of his first slides, he put in this, the hostile urban environments um, or versus a safe haven. And what I think everybody, most of the folks in today's group in particular, um, that want to be a part of solving this problem, truly solving it in a compassionate and meaningful way, doing, are working to create an environment that's a safe haven. That's an aspirational goal, a safe haven that's and, and centered in clients and keeping folks safe. But I also think there, there is a sense of a hostile, there's a hostile environment as well because people don't want homeless people downtown. They don't want them in their parks. They don't want them in their neighborhoods. And I mean, I just know that the county, like we get pressure from not only folks in this group today to solve this problem, but also from private business owners, private citizens, like fix this, Get, solve this problem. We don't want, they shouldn't be here. So I, I and I, this goes to, I think the, what's the story we tell about ourselves as a community? Are we caring and compassionate or do we, do we want these folks out of out of sight, out of mind? I mean, there's, and that's, I think, you know, the discriminatory, the discrimination is like, and the stigma is so much at the heart of this and needs a lot more work. Um, and that's, you know, some of the work that, that Leah and I did with the poverty plan, um, poverty is a, Poverty is rooted in discrimination and racism. And only after like a real deliberative process, you know, and, and time and a lot of good conversation did we really get, I think, a shared understanding of the role that discrimination and racism it has on people's economic livelihoods. So Jill, can I move that up to the other segment about what the need is versus a program element. Sure, and, you know, I, I, and you're right, and I apologize, but I feel like that's what I was hearing in some of the comments just leading up to this that maybe hasn't been unearthed yet. Yeah. yeah. So, so one of the things uh, that Sam said this morning, you know, is is that Housing First is a an invisible program, right? And it and the irony of of those two, those two situations, right? The, the, which story are we telling about ourselves is that the same solution addresses both viewpoints, right? Like, like if you, if you actually take 300 people off the street and put them in housing, not only are we being a compassionate community that's housing people, but we're also addressing the issues of there's homeless people everywhere I go, or I see them in the parks and I see them downtown, you know, um, you know, or I don't like them camping by the river or whatever the, you know, whatever, whatever the, the negative viewpoint is. When we take those folks and we put them into housing, then they're just members in a community that are in a house, right? And they stop being the, the, the homeless 
that are congregating in, in areas of the of the city. So, I th I think it's um, I, I think it's a valid point, Jill, and I and I just want to point out that to some degree, you know, if if we can if we can get if we can get both of those sides to sort of understand that by housing folks, we're addressing both both concerns. Thanks. I was just going to add on the program elements, uh, more case management, that's like support to those people we house you know, because of the challenges they experience. They need more support in finding employment, getting more documentation done for them to maintain their housing. Stephen also put in the chat that he thinks there's a strong economic case for doing housing first um, and used Utah as a great example. Um, can I add to what Abigail said and, and um, training or, you know, um, how do, how should we put this like building and building the expertise in the housing first housing based services locally um, because it's not it's not there um, we talked a little bit about that yesterday in one of my groups so training our when people come we're here in this group people come to apply to work for me as a housing-based case manager do they understand housing first principles are they ready to leap into action at work right away like to serve in that capacity and um I, i'm you know we have to train people to understand these practices and principles and participate in an act team or or whatever so yeah yeah. Thanks. We have done some statewide trainings on housing first, and you know we can come in and do a, a training here in Douglas County too. And Andy, um, Missy Bogart Starkey and I are act have actually been chatting about doing a statewide um, at the mm -hmm. host of COC and KDADS, of uh, bringing in. Um, I'm so sorry, I cannot remember his name. The Sam. one we did the present. Thank yeah. you. Uh, it's on a statewide level so that everyone can have that understanding. Um, I will tell you some of the COC, I can only speak to the COC experience, is there is not a strong understanding of the principle or of guidance or compliance. Um, everybody's doing the best they can, but there's not a genuine understanding and buy-in about what it really means to implement a housing first policy and program. So one of our goals to address that is to create an understanding and the only way we can do that is to bring in the expert and do one statewide uh, training for everyone, not just COC membership, but everyone that would want to attend um, and the uh, KSHC and the COC be the host of that. And that is absolutely going to happen sooner or later. In fact, Missy, I don't know if she's on the call today. Uh, we've been chatting. Uh, so that kind of came up as uh, uh, one of Missy's uh, uh, goals and so we've definitely engaged we think that's there's a value for everyone and that would include you know I always speak at a statewide level but that absolutely include everyone in our Douglas and Lawrence communities as well there's no limit on who we would invite yeah well and I I think we need a lot more training on that I can't it, I completely agree. I think part of the challenge in our community is because of the high costs and lack of vacancy and lack of housing supply and that people can get a lot more money, 
there's no units to to use this on. I mean, it's like which comes first, the chicken or the egg? We we need to have the units and the subsidy to do housing first. Um, and and getting to that point is is what's challenging, I think, because there isn't, uh, you know the funding right now or the, well, I don't want to say there isn't, Renee made a good point. We know that we could do it if we wanted to, um, but let's, but we need to get those funding um, streams in to really be able to do it. I mean, I know right now we, we rent all of our units at 50% of fair market rent, but I can't rent it at zero or I would go under and not be able to pay my staff. So I'm going to need more support to create those kind of supportive service or housing first units. Um, and and well, so- Yeah, and Rebecca, housing first doesn't mean no rent, right? Like that's- Right, it doesn't, but a, but a lot of the folks may need more subsidized rent, which is the challenge here in Lawrence of just, you know, mm -hmm. getting something to be barely affordable for a family that's high functioning is a challenge, much less someone who has very limited means. And I think that gap of three, $400 of what someone who needs housing first can, can often afford versus somebody else is, is a lot of times a gap that we just, we need the, the subsidy to do. Well, and, and just following on what Rebecca says, we uh, we assist 70% of the people we assist are at or below 30% of area median income. And again, that's, that's, a, that's a group that really they don't need a lot of support, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so when we're talking, the group we're talking about, that is a whole different level of funding. Um, and we need it. And I agree with Renee, we can, you know, if we want to, we can figure out how to do it. Um, and I also, you know, kind of want to uh, dovetail what Andy was saying, which is, um, you know, Rebecca and I both have kind of learned this the hard way in that um, no matter what you're trying to do, the minute somebody attaches the word affordable to it, we get pushback, even in neighborhoods you wouldn't expect for to get pushback in. Um, you know, Rebecca had a project that was going to be seniors, which are some of the easiest to house. Um, and she got all kinds of pushback. And so I do think we want to keep an eye out and, and the training that Don was talking about be very helpful but but what we can't but what I don't think is it is effective is is to only say this is a you know justice matter which I agree, completely agree with but that doesn't get us where we need to go what we need to, to address is yeah, it's a justice matter, and we will take into consideration the other community members' concerns, and here's how we're going to address those. Because if we don't, we'll get nowhere with this, I think, in my personal so, I'm sorry, Shannon. Is there an element that I'm not typing that you wanted on here, or are you supporting? Well, what I'm supporting is that. that as we decide what we're going to do, we need to take the community concerns into account right. and figure out a game plan for dealing with them. 
Anything else on, so anything else on the proposed program elements, not the how you're gonna do it, but just any other elements? All right. I, I think we, ha we have one that probably needs to be in here and that's a shared database, a shared, I, you know, built for zero says the shared list or whatever. And of course, I'm going to say that includes those who are also doubled up or in situations that um, don't necessarily qualify for the coordinated entry or COC. Okay, so the shared database would serve those you just mentioned? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it would just have to be broader. Okay, next. Uh, Can I ask a quick question on, on this? Because something Renee said raised a question in my mind, which is where you were saying a housing first model from day one, what is your vision for the community shelter? It, I, I don't like, are these two different things or I, I may not be following that actual well, I don't think in a housing first environment, I think that people need multiple points of entry into a program. Um, there are lots of folks for whom the congregate shelter is not viable and they would, if they had to go through shelter, would never access a housing first program. And I think that most of those folks are probably in that 20% range that Matt is talking about, but probably most of our chronically homeless folks and most, um, highest acuity in their behavioral health disorder um, either would not choose the shelter and that's for a number of reasons or have already um, established a really negative history with us. Um, so so for, for, yeah, for ending chronic homelessness, we have to be able to make these programs accessible to people from right where they are. And Burt Nash does a great job at doing that with rapid rehousing. So it's just, We've talked a lot about having, you know, folks right now are accessing rapid rehousing from LCS, but they're also accessing it from the street via David and, and Matt's team. Um, and this is, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but I, uh, I do want to highlight it. Um, everybody right now who's going to coordinated entry is getting referred to rapid rehousing no matter what, because there are no other funding opportunities in that system. That being said, there are a lot of people that we're trying to place through rapid rehousing for whom that is not the ideal housing option. And we're likely gonna burn a lot of bridges with some landlords because we've housed them in, and uh, they're gonna cause some damages and do some things. That being said, we're gonna do it and uh, we're gonna continue doing that. But um, I, I, we're not gonna alter that until we do have other housing options in place, but we really do need other housing options in place in order for rapid housing, for example, to be as successful as we really want it to be. And for the households for whom that is not the correct uh, option to be as successful as we want them to be. Matt, can you speak to what some of the other options we are, that we need are? I mean, I think that needs to be in our program list. Yeah, so um, 
uh, various different forms of permanent supportive housing um, that includes, you know, an apartment complex, but that also includes single occupancy houses because as we've talked before today, people can't live with shared walls. There's some folks who don't need shared walls. That means um, not only damage resistant, but eviction proof housing um, for a small section of people. Um, we have folks that we work with who are in and out state hospitals, in and out of Larned, for example, they are severely mentally ill. They're never going to not be severely mentally ill and they, they need a special type of housing that they cannot lose. They may walk away from it. They may walk off into the wilderness, right? But whenever they connect back up and we find them again, they have a place to live and they're not just homeless because they're so mentally ill. Um, we need group homes, um, a form of group home that uh, is for mental health rather than you know, just SUD and also for dual diagnosis. Um, you know, and I, I won't go on and on, but we can hash out the details as I'm not sure if this is the right place to hash out all those details, but those are the types of things we need in addition to something like rapid rehousing and voucher-based community-based housing. And again, this is for that 20%. For the 80% voucher-based uh, community uh, housing is what we need uh, with the case management to support them. Um, okay, I did capture that. Matthew, on the list. I think it's good to list those. Yeah. Yeah. So those are all there. Yeah. Another thing that that Sam said from this morning that I that I'd highlight again, uh, uh, sort of about the role of the shelter within the community, is that that when our you know and and I'm, I'm not talking about our, our current shelter situation, but in the past when we've had. Um, folks that have been in the shelter for long periods of time or haven't, you know, we've had overcrowding at the shelter. That's a symptom of the fact that we don't have enough housing, right? So what, what Sam was talking about is like, well, we make the investment in housing first and getting people into housing. That allows for the shelter to become a, a, a pass-through, right? Where there, it's no longer a, a bottleneck, right? And that allows folks that do need that um, temporary shelter support to have access to it. You know, a lot, sometimes the, you know, the problems that we've had in the past is, is that the shelter gets full of people that aren't moving out of the shelter. And because of that, it creates backlogs and problems, you know, that are, that are symptomatic of an issue that, that is addressable. Right. And so, you know, to me, a, a healthy shelter looks like a place where people can go to in the moment because they need a roof over their head and they need three meals and a place to sleep. Right. Um, and that is something that the shelter can always fill that role. I think Renee is doing a really good job of expanding that role to help do additional programming and other supports as well. But it, it really does, you know, a lot, a lot of the things that we think of as being the homeless problem are really just symptoms of the fact that we don't have a program that gets people into housing quickly. And Joyce, Leah wanted to ensure, she said she knows it's been verbalized, but more permanent affordable housing stock on the needs list. Yeah, it's there. Okay. Thank you. So I'm wondering if we could just take a five minute stretch 
And then the next um, question we had on our list was looking at sustainability. You're addressing some of that by some of these program elements and talking about ones that are more long-term. Is there a different question you'd rather address when we come back from the taking five? So at the risk of uh, a little bit of bait and switch, uh, as we checked in as a team, we thought we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit to talk about sustainability. And so I'm going to suggest we examine these questions. I'm making an assumption that this is that rare moment in time when it's possible that you could make significant progress without everyone agreeing on everything. Um, and I think it would be potentially useful as you move forward to really think about where is there alignment and agreement among the people who are working on this? And where are some different differing views, not necessarily to fix them or resolve them, but to acknowledge them and pay attention to them. So let me just throw out those questions. Where have we reached agreement? And where do we have some differing views? One thing I'd put out that I think everybody might agree with is where we've reached agreement is this has to be an ongoing conversation and collaboration regardless. I'd say that uh, uh, Dana's uh, reminder that uh, people who are often overlooked in our homeless counts and such are a priority still, and they should not be overlooked. And Sandra put in the chat that she thinks we've reached agreement and need to consider sustainability throughout planning and implementation. And Stephen put, it sounds like housing first is an agreement, embracing that model. And that there is a small percentage that need more and different from housing first. So I recognize there's a lot of social pressure in a moment like this to just go on. <laughs> if you all saw an article published or a reference made or a speech given that said the people who came together for this summit agreed on those five bullets, what would give you heartburn? I guess I wanted more clarity about what that means when we say a small percentage don't need housing first. Like they still need housing, right? It's just they also need supportive services 
Well, so it's housing yeah. first combined I, I didn't with say, services. I didn't say they didn't need housing first. I said they needed something more and different. So how a housing first mentality is still critical and they absolutely should not have their opportunity to access housing held up. I just thought I heard that they would need something more and different than the 80% to be successful with that housing first opportunity. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I was just clarifying just to make sure. Yeah. So, and, and Gabby, really what, what that comes down to is, is you know, we know as, as an evidence-based practice that that pathways model for housing first is successful for about 80% of the people that participate in it. And then there's another 20% that for whatever reason, it, it's not a good fit for them and they need additional um, structured environments. Seth, you asked the question if we saw this in, in the newspaper. Um, I couldn't see my, my, my names are too small on the side here. Um, that we don't have uh, in that list missing there's housing stock, affordable housing, more units, supportive housing. I think that that was an agreement. We certainly need somewhere for folks to go. <laughs> so we need more housing options, however, however that's stated. Thank you, Dana. Well, and, and I will say um, one, one of the things you hear in Lawrence a lot is um, sometimes we talk about things to death. And so that first one where it says we need ongoing conversation and collaboration, I also think, um, you know, we, that we should say we've reached an agreement that in, I mean, in X amount of time, we will identify the leadership of this initiative because uh, I think we could, I mean, we've been talking about it for a very long time. We actually finally have the ability to get some resources and we better put some pressure on ourselves to make some choices. Mm -hmm. yeah, and, and Shannon, I think, um, I would look at that as like, it's another thing that we've agreed on is that there's an agreed need that leadership is necessary, right? But then under differing views, um, you know, we haven't yet established an agreed upon um, method for leadership. And those process challenges are part of the work. Mm -hmm. And Shannon and I really appreciate you elevating this, that more than one thing can be true at a time. You absolutely need to keep talking. And you gotta be about it. Thank you, Renee. room here for a couple other things where there might be either differing views or where, where it's still um, too fuzzy to be clear. I think, I think another thing I heard earlier where we had differing views was maybe around the concept of a centralized social service hub.
I feel like the second you start centralizing social services, you you you're going to have gaps other places. Like I think about the area beyond 23rd Street in Iowa, that sort of like corner area where I'm, there's that um, the old I want to say the old United Way building, but there's other organizations housed there and still continue um, to be. But if we had all of our services over by the hospital, that that area would be completely left out of the conversation um, with those who don't have transportation services. And especially in the Lawrence area, our bus system is not great, as we all know. Um, but yeah, I, I think having one area with as big of Lawrence as it is, and it's not even super big, but still like people are going to have transportation issues. I think being mobile is a huge thing um, with social services and being able to go to places. So I really enjoy these conversations about the mobile response team that um, have been happening lately. So I, I, I do want to chime in on this. The idea of the social service hub is not that all social services are located there, but it's that there's a, a satellite place where all services have an office. The gaps for accessing services actually already exist because things are so spread out. Clients can't get to where they need to be to access services because they're at all four corners of the community. And for example, outreach team, they spend a lot of time transporting people hither and yon to just food across town to you know, hand in an application at Prairie Ridge or this and that. Um, and that one, it's extremely inefficient, takes a lot of time. And that's intended to overcome that barrier. This is just uh, an, a, you know, a possibility. I'm, I, I, we don't have to do it. Maybe we shouldn't do it, um, but it is one way of possibly helping to address that barrier while also helping to save time and be a little more efficient with, uh, in supporting our service providers and, and being able to connect with people. Um, and, but again, this is not that everybody moves to one building. This is that people have an office and a satellite space that is shared with other service providers. So this is a great example as you all are moving forward and identifying program elements and strategies to recognize that there's some tension around this question and uh, to let that fuel next discussions. Um, it's possible this is something where you have to resolve it to one clear answer. It's possible this is something where there can continue to be tension within the community around the best way forward. And it's useful to know it's there. And I don't, it, it might even be, uh, you know, based on what you just said, Matthew, it might be good to refer to it as an intake hub. And, and that being said, like, like I've tried to continue to say that, that I don't think that people should have, this should not be the place where everyone has to go. This is an option because with a no wrong door approach, we wanna make every agency be an agency that can assist people in finding the agency or a resource that's gonna help them the most. So, you know, I don't want this to be viewed as something where, oh, everybody just says, go over there. You know, if they come to you, help them. But there is a centralized location where everyone could go. I just think that there's a much more sophisticated way to create create uniformity and accessibility for folks who are trying to 
access services and I've seen it done in a more complex way in different communities. And so I think it's safe to say like including a call center, including a website. I mean, there's just a lot more to it than creating a single door. So I didn't want to create debate around I don't want to create debate around it. I think we have differing views on it. And so let's move on to the next thing. We need something that's less complex. So is is a I, I know last night, I think in discussion, there was something about hotline or maybe having a call line. Is that something that we should be adding to our list of um, programmatic elements? Yes, definitely. We need a, we need a phone number. That does what exactly? I'm confused. We need, we need a um, access point that is a single phone number for coordinated entry. We really need to have one number that people call to get connected. Well, right in, now. in other communities, in other communities, 211 plays that role. And I talked to the, I'm sorry, my dog's barking because the bus got home with kids. Um, but 211 plays that role. I've talked to the United Way in Wichita about, you know, can their call takers do that? Um, and they're open to it, but once again, they don't have the capacity to take that on for, for us right now either, but that would be 211. We're all, we're constantly saying call 211 for resource referral. And I do think it could be something we could invest in more, but yeah. And and Jill and Renee, and I think Jill knows this, maybe Renee, but I'm sure no one else knows. One of the things that the KSHC launched recently during COVID is we have a hidden form on our website that is a VI SCADAT form, because what we were recognizing, especially with our work with KDADS, was we had gaps where there wasn't an agency or they didn't know where to, to go to an agency or there was some serious barriers that we needed to intervene. So what we've been doing, and this is not a fix all, I'm just saying it has been successful so far, is basically anyone that we've given that form to, we didn't open it to the general public for obvious reasons, but any of our agencies have it, they fill out the form, our staff calls, does the BI spit out, gets them onto the proper coordinated entry, and then they're immediately there, which helped a lot of our agencies who were having backlogs or large volumes and so forth. Um, and so even if it's not a phone number or call center, but there's some kind of hub where somebody can fill out the form. We have it for agencies. I think that model can be changed a little, you know, for the use as you guys would want it. Um, all I can offer is that the form is available on our website and we've had great success in supporting our agencies. Um, if they get someone that goes to a different, you know, let's say they came to Lawrence, but they were really should be going to Southeast. We immediately transitioned them. It's not call this person or that in the absence of, 211 and some of the challenges, uh, I know Kansas City used 211 and Johnson County is part of that and, and Topeka as well. Some of the challenges are then they only give a list. It's not an immediate intake. Um, we did meet in NHJSDC with some agencies across COCs, excuse me, across the uh, United States that did have one solid 211 that did bring them in and did the intake on the VX down on the phone and got them on coordinated entry. But you're talking about a very complex training support system and guidance and uh, that's a high level aspiration and you know i'm only offering what we 
are doing on a very small scale. It's very minute, but it's still, you know, it's still uh, an effort to make some centralized type because otherwise we'd have to say, call Catholic Charities, call Salvation Army, call United Way. And people are, you know, when you're in crisis, you don't want to be bounced to five different places and then get a different answer from each one. Yeah, this is important stuff. I'm, I'm going to try to move us back to one level higher, please. And uh, it's an interesting moment. I, I'm not trying to dig for dirt. I'm not trying to make trouble if there isn't trouble. And it's useful to know now what are some things that you might get tripped on later. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll ask for maybe the last time, where are there some different views that might enter the conversation later so you don't get surprised? Something just very generally, I just want to say, I love Seth that you're pushing us to like have conflict because I think in these moments we we get to better understandings of where we need to be and and where we all are with things too. So I just want to say I appreciate that. And Leah posted in chat that she wanted to differentiate between a social service hub for providers and a campus of support for people experiencing homelessness. Thank you. Mm -hmm. One place where I think there might be some differing views or just that we haven't come to an agreement on what best practices are is um, that good balance between using the market system, landlords and rentals with vouchers and how do we ensure that um, we have permanently affordable units with more supportive services um, to serve those that that it's really expensive or really hard to serve with the market. Um. Thanks, Rebecca. I was going to say something similar, I think, and that's also that we have different views on the landlord, I think, um, but they, it, I think they need to be part of this equation too for it to be successful. And maybe not just, maybe not landlord, but property managers, more of a broad term. It might be the landlord, but it might not be. <clears throat> I would second what Rebecca and Dana said, because in my mind, that's reality today versus, or a little more realistic versus aspirational. <laughs> Uh, Brandon, I did see your hand briefly earlier. Well, I'm, I'm just wondering if this might, if there are future discussions about, I guess, revenue, revenue streams. I'm, I'm not sure if we all entirely are walking away with a good understanding of kind of who pays for what. I think it's something that we're going to forever be con confronted with. Yeah, well, and I... I would say like when it comes to the funding streams, like we know that there's gonna be these federal funds that are coming in to um, KDADS that'll be able to help cover supportive services. We know that there's gonna be funding that's gonna be coming into KHRC to support um, both, you know, uh, sort of surge funding for those traditional programs, but also possibly additional brick and mortar programs. Um, 
and then you know well there's going to be some discretionary funds that come to the city and the county um there's going to be funding that goes to the school district you know so it, i think when it when you when we start looking at what the funding streams are the important part to remember is is that there's going to be funding that individual agencies in town can apply for as 501c3s there's going to be funding that the city and the county will have to make decisions about. There's gonna be funding the school board is gonna be making decisions about. Um, there's funding that um, KHRC and um, KDADS will make, be making decisions about. And, and we want, you know, my, my goal is, or my hope is, is that we can, as a community, develop enough of a framework that everybody can use that framework to help make those decisions and apply for those funds that they're eligible to apply for. Um, and that we put the, the pieces together um, through that braided funding mechanism we talked about um, using the different buckets to serve the people that those buckets are eligible to serve. But it is a complicated answer, Brandon. <laughs> no, and I, I appreciate that. I was just, suggesting that it's you know there are a lot of unknowns and decision points left mm -hmm. in, in inevitably you know conflict rises at, at points of decision when it's time to make the decision so yeah absolutely and yeah. this vein adding to the kind of list of folks where there may be disagreement is um on the local level when it concerns local funding who's responsible for funding what On the federal level, you know, as Andy said, there are buckets and you can only apply for buckets according to the, diff, you know, the label on the bucket. But locally, we haven't defined our buckets. Yeah, thanks for that, Matt. I, I remember Sam asking this morning, who pays for what is an important operational question. Renee, yeah, are you I jumping think... in there? I'm sorry, go ahead, Stephen. Well, I think related to that, uh, and I think I've said this before, uh, but who receives funding is often a point of tension. Uh, the way that our system, our infrastructure, our nonprofit infrastructure in this country is structured is really built on a scarcity mentality where every nonprofit has to grab whatever they can. I mean, it's actually really similar to how we treat people in poverty is how we treat our nonprofit entities. Um, and if you throw a bunch of money into the room um, with that mentality of scarcity, uh, individual organizations, and there's no judgment here. It's it's only like it's human nature. It's also organizational nature, uh, where you begin to uh, look out for yourself and your interests, and even the best intentioned and noble people. Uh, ego can get in the way of accomplishing what's best for a community, and I've seen that time and time again. I don't think it's as bad here as say in privatized child welfare where you know you might actually knife the competition in the parking lot. Um, but I, I do think it's something that we have to be open about and pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, thank you for naming that, Stephen. Should I put a note, the differing opinion is where funding should go or how funding should be used? 
what what I thought I was hearing, Zane, was um, uh, around specifically in the nonprofit community, who should receive funding and then who should use that funding. Was I am I being true to your statement here, Stephen? Yeah, I, 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 think, I, I think so. I just think, um, you know, people and organizations are hungry. And when there's a large pot of money out there, I just think we ought to be really, really thoughtful. But in this opportunity, we do everything we can um, to try and navigate through and manage that conversation. I, I would say something, I think maybe I'd try to recapture it as instead of who should receive funding as how should funding be allocated and utilized equitably. And how are funded agencies going to be held accountable to the goal? I don't know if we have different views on that, but I don't think we've articulated how that's going to happen. Yeah, that's certainly not yet defined. Thank you. Well, Renee, I think that's a great thing is how is anyone going to be held accountable to the goal? Uh, funding aside, you know, if we all enter into a collective agreement verbally or otherwise, how are we going to keep ourselves accountable, right? How are we going to measure what is our performance look at like? Um, you don't set a goal without deciding how you measure what success looks like. Are you 50% there? Are you 75 so a timetable with benchmarks and goals, I think is absolutely, it's just required for all of us. And that is a level of accountability in some, in twofold, you know, you always want to measure success, but you also want to keep yourself accountable and on track as well. And that leads to success. And when you're braiding funding, um, not agreeing to uh, a measure that some of your um, co-Brady's aren't also agreeing to? Well, thank you for spending the time on this. Uh, I know it will be a brief conversation, but what does sustainability look like very long-term? I'm wondering, could you give yourselves five pieces of advice about sustainability? that we'll record and you can come back to later? Uh, so, so my number one bullet point here, Seth, would be Medicaid billing. We mentioned, but only briefly, an endowment. And I think that is something worth digging into. Um, could we say endowment or a trust? Because I think um, there's a little bit of a difference in that endowments typically involve um, some market-based wizardry that like it's <laughs> different it's so. an event it, it, the difference uh and again i guess my grant person's coming out an endowment is you utilize the um okay. the profits and mm -hmm. that is what you operate off where a trust is the bucket and you're distributing the bucket over an agreed amount of time if that offers any clarification i kind of like your wizardry but apparently <laughs> i just needed to get to get a little more in there for you renee but you're, thank you yeah. Yep. I don't own any GameStop stock or anything like that, <laughs> but I don't understand how it works. 
they make the property to sell you. Typically, <laughs> trust. it needs to be and or trust because I think yeah. both of them have value. Those, those are details that need to be hashed out when we're talking about them as a community. Typically, trusts can be spent entirely. And so there risk, there's a risk of losing them. Endowments, as uh, Don said, you only spend the dividends. And so you always retain. It's more permanent. Trusts are less permanent than endowments, typically. Matthew, thank you. Dividends, I could not think of on the spot. I appreciate you. I did, I did know the word. I'm seeing some other suggestions in the chat, Zane. Um, uh, framing housing as healthcare. Outcomes focused. Organizational leadership and capacity. Sandra speaking my language, adaptability as needs among those who will benefit change over time and community commitment. I'd like to say something about that. Um, and I think uh, probably uh, Renee would <laughs> chime in is that whatever we build, um, the, it has to have a good business model, a good pro forma. It can't be that every time we end up in a shortfall, we're going to try to do fundraising through the community and go compete. And um, because, I mean, it's just very hard to run something like that. Yeah, I agree, Shannon. And the reality is, is there's only so much juice in the orange. You know, we were talking about this with the crisis, the crisis center. If we start fundraising for the crisis center, it may mean unintended, unintended consequences as donors shift their, I mean, there's only so much money um, and we need, I think, revenue streams and business models um, that can sustain it. Um, rich people buy real estate for a reason. I think if we're smart, um, we can make this work financially uh, for us too, especially if we braid it uh, with some of those Medicaid uh, funding streams. And I think even some private insurance companies are starting to pay uh, directly uh, for, for housing. I also want us to encourage people to think about things that are outside of capitalism as far as sustainability. Like we all are at advocate on some level, we need to continue advocating for systemic change where we don't have to think about good business models, where we're essentially trying to work ourselves out of jobs. I think that no one wants to be in nonprofit work, but we all do it because we see a need and hopefully at a certain point, we, we won't have to worry about homelessness, you know? So, so what are ways that we can move the systemic needle to, to that end too? But Gabby, don't you think that even advocacy is uh, a key element of sustainability in, you know, in different aspects? But I think you're exactly right. There still has to be advocacy, no matter how much money you have, there still has to be advocacy to create a sustainable And Leah wanted to uh, um, wanted to say that she wasn't referencing fundraisers when she was talking about community commitment. Yeah, I appreciate that, Leah. I, I'm not sure we all understood your intent, and I think it uh, launched a, some useful pieces of the conversation. So, thanks for letting us be wrong for a moment. 
as we're moving towards uh, today's um, today's end of the agenda, recognizing you've already talked a little bit about technical steps, so there might be a little redundancy. What are the next steps and who's responsible? Um, so Seth, um, Sandy, and I did agree to um, uh, come back and do a follow-up um, with um, Douglas County and um, City of Lawrence and some of the other um, partner agencies, and then um, talk about what what next steps we need to do um, in that situation. Um, and then I also think that we need to look at how to do some engagement with the community. Um, and I think what we discussed there was around folks with lived experience and also specifically with um, uh, BIPOC. Andy, this is Sarah. I, I just wanna ask a couple clarifying questions here. First of all, like, what's your time frame for that follow-up? Do you? Uh, I was gonna, I said two weeks earlier, Sarah. Okay. Okay. Um, it'd be great. My calendar's full two weeks from now. So I, I'd love to start scheduling that tomorrow if we could. Yep. To yep. get, I think to get everybody in the room, you're going to need to do that sooner. And then yeah, I guess. I was, yeah. And Sarah, I, I wasn't thinking everybody that's in the room right now. Nope. I even, even just the community, the, the city and the county alone, mm -hmm. it'll take two weeks to get a calendar put together. All right. And then when you say next steps, can you tell me a little bit, are you talking about the leadership notion? Is that what you're sort of referencing yeah, you want, there? I want, yeah, I was hoping to talk about um, leadership and also about um, uh, moving this from, a, uh, from the discussion that we've had during the summit to um, a more flushed out um, framework. And then um, how to bring people back together um, to work on that. I think when it, it might be helpful with, when, you're, when you talk about leadership and partner agencies, who are you thinking about, Andy? Just so folks don't leave today and be like, hey, how come I wasn't invited to this next the after party? Um, um, yeah, well, and I'm, I'm not even sure I, I have a clear definition in my head yet, Jill, but I, I, I am thinking about Burt Nash because of the, the link there to um, uh, Housing First Services, uh, and I was thinking about the shelter, um, and um, I'm not sure, there's, I'm sure there's probably some other folks that we might want to include, like maybe Rebecca or um, Dana. So I'm throwing an impolite question in the chat and you might not have an answer in this moment, but as you think about who's in that room, who could on purpose or inadvertently impede progress by not being in the next conversation.
I would say people with lived experience in response to that question, but I also know that engaging those folks requires preparation, intention, a plan. Um, and so I just, because there was a lot of discussion about that um, uh, earlier in the day. Um, and I just want to be clear that my vision for like including those folks is um, not uh, just quick and dirty. It, it's something that needs to be have its own process and be um, intentional. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we, um, and I don't want to go on a tangent, but we used to have a functional organization that really stood as a platform for people with lived experience to come, specifically with uh, you know homelessness experience, to come and voice their concerns and challenges and provide feedback, and that would then go take that and advocate. Um, and we don't have that really anymore. So let's acknowledge this is another one of those process challenges that y'all are going to have to keep navigating. Hi, Andy. This is Abigail. I was going to also suggest, like you talked about um, engaging community and people of color. I would suggest reaching out to agencies that work with people of color. I do want to say that Lawrence Mutual Aid Network was doing a lot of work even just yesterday getting pallets out to, to homeless folks at campgrounds and, and things like that. So um, I want to include Marielle and um, also other people. I know that Lawrence Mutual Aid Network also engages with Food Not Bombs, who does a lot of that work as well. Um, so uphold those two organizations. I don't mean to step in here as like because I've only been, I've been in and out. So I apologize if I say something I shouldn't. I don't interpret Andy's um, desire to follow up on next steps as that is the group, that is the strategy group moving forward. I just view it as a neck, just a how, how do, who's going to, who's going to support and stand up that larger group that we need to have that's inclusive. If, is that a, an interpretation of that that works, Andy? I'm, so I don't. Yeah. yeah no. So when we talk about who's not who's not in, in left out, I don't want anyone left out of the strategy. I just think I, I think when we form a, a leadership strat, you know strategy on this, I think it needs to be completely inclusive. But I don't know that like that has to be the exact next meeting. But maybe I maybe I've said something there I shouldn't. Yeah, no, so, so Sarah, like we, for example, like we had a group of people that worked on planning this event, right. right? And that's kind of the same group of people that I was thinking about engaging with um, uh, in between, right? Um, and, I, and I just, I think like it's important that, um, you know, like I, like I can't be the person that provides the leadership on this long-term, Right. So I do need to kind of, um, uh, you know, work with you guys to figure out who's carrying what torches later. Right. But I don't, I don't want to leave you in a situation where you feel like you're not being supported in the effort. So I do want to bring some folks back together and talk about, you know, what do we do next and how do we do it? Um, and, then we'll sort of reconvene around these um, additional engagement opportunities. 
um, and talk about how the work moves forward, right? Um, because I do think like, it's clear to me that like, there are some missing structure pieces, right? That um, are important for community engagement. Um, and I think, I think that's a discussion that I'm gonna need to have, but it's gonna need to, like I need it to be a small enough conversation that it stays focused on on what what we need to do for just the immediate next steps. I can speak on that. Sorry, this is Marielle. I'm back. Thanks so much. Um, uh, sorry for my absence. I had my a work review, so that was fun. Um, but it, as far as um, looking at this and thinking about these agencies, and um, especially those with uh, intersecting identities, marginalized identities. That has been something that Lawrence Mutual Aid Network has dedicated its campaign on Housing First um, to do is provide that education and be that connection from the community to the stakeholders, to the service providers, to the city and county commission. Um, we've been trying to just share very general education right now um, on what Housing First is, what that looks like. And so I think we definitely have even discussed with uh, the shelter, um, Food Food Not Bombs, which is another group that we've been working with and actually going into um, the spaces that those experiencing homelessness are occupying and working with them and getting them supplied. We're talking about having community listening sessions and having a very open dialogue on how we, one, create strategy and create planning and two, how we communicate that. So um, we are happy to continue doing that work. We're happy to welcome in and think of more organizations and groups we know are doing the work that maybe are not in the nonprofit world, but are more in the grassroots organizing world. Because I think that that's such a big thing in Lawrence um, that it needs to be uplifted and those folks need to be uh, or become those stakeholders or part of that stakeholder team. So um, please, uh, when we think about who needs to be in the room, we would love to help expand on that and, and whatever we need to take in as far as doing the work or helping um, provide that communication, we're here to do and why we're so excited to be invited <laughs> to this space in the first place because we're definitely not a, a traditional group to come in here. We're not a nonprofit and we don't um, necessarily believe in the structure of nonprofits. And so um, having as many perspectives in that way is also going to be very crucial to this process. Um, so just want to throw that out that, that we're here to help in that space. And so please feel free to reach out and utilize us um, to get any sort of information and education out. Yeah. So, well, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I wish I would have gone ahead and voiced when we we're on the disagreements. I, I wanted to put as a potential disagreement the role that grassroots community organizations should play in a leadership or just how we see grassroots community organizations. And really that was, you know, a lot of what was behind my comment around we need community commitment. I wasn't talking about donors. I was talking about community of 
grassroots organizers of people putting boots on the ground and of people with lived experience being at the table set doing the table setting right not just being invited in after 